This is iFanboy 2017 All Media Year End Roundup, brought to you by iFanboy listeners just like you. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin. Good tidings for Christmas and a Happy New Year. Oh, bring us a figgy pudding. Oh, bring us a figgy pudding. Welcome to the iFanboy 2017 All Media Year and Roundup. My name is Connor Kilpatrick, and I'm here with Josh Flanagan. Hello, everybody. How are you? And Mike Romo. Hi, guys. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome. Happy holidays. Happy end of the year. We are iFanboy, and we like comics, but we also like a lot of other things. And as we've been doing every year since we started this show back in 2000 and, well, the end of 2005 into 2006, we're going to talk about the movies, the TV shows, the music, the games, the books, the podcasts, and even the comics that we liked in 2017. It's our end of year roundup. It's a gift for us, really. Before we get to the show, quick reminder and a warning. It's a review show. We'll be talking about some of the uh, year's movies and TV shows and things. We, we might talk about things that happened in them. We don't know. We'll find out. But if you're sensitive about spoilers, utilize those show notes. Skip those parts or pause the show. Don't get spoiled. Don't ruin your holidays. Pause the show for about three and a half hours. Watch the Blade Runner movie. Five hours. Seven hours. Oh, it's good. This is good. We're going to kick things off with the movie segment. And before we get into it really quickly, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this year, in terms of prestige films, this was not as strong as last year. I feel like they're all coming out in the next three weeks. Like good ones were at the very beginning of this year. Like the middle was like a very bad, empty hamburger (laughs) of not quality. I had the hardest time making a movie list this year (laughs) than I had. And it. It didn't feel like I saw less movies, but as I was going through the list, I was like, I, I guess I saw way less movies this year. Because last couple of years, surprisingly, I was pretty up on things. Yeah. Uh, and this I year, think they were, I don't think I was interested in a lot of them. A lot of films you could wait for. It, was, it like. was a lot of like, okay, that's like, it was nothing I was super excited about. I made sure to see some of the big zeitgeisty ones, and I think that was rewarded for those. We're going to talk about some of those coming up, but... Yeah, largely, I don't feel like I saw a lot, but I also don't feel like I missed a lot. But I, I guess I'll hear otherwise, uh, as Connor does every year. <laughs> so we'll kick things off <laughs> with Darkest Hour, which is a film that goes wide release the end of December, but it's out in, in New York and L.A. And Darkest Hour is the story of the first month of Winston Churchill's term in prime minister. And it stars Gary Oldman and Lily James, Kristen Scott Thomas, and a bunch of British actors who are terrific. But this is the film getting all kinds of best actor buzz for Gary Oldman's portrayal as Winston Churchill. And I have to say, if you didn't know who was playing Churchill, you would have no idea. I mean, it's, wow. it's a complete and utter transformation. Only around the eyes, after a while, do you start to see it. But the prosthetics, I mean, you can't tell. First of all, you can't really tell it's a guy under a lot of makeup. And then you can't tell who it is under the makeup once you figure that out. Very cool. What's great about this movie is, so it starts basically with the uh, no uh, confidence vote in, in Neville Chamberlain, and it ends basically with the Dunkirk speech. So we're going to move into Dunkirk after this. You really see how insane his first month was. I mean, it was like the most insane first month of anyone at a new job. He not only had to deal with the Nazis pushing the French and the English into the channel, but he had to deal with an opposition party who was constantly trying to undermine him and get him kicked out of office, and a king who didn't quite trust him, and uh, people who still blamed him for a lot of things. It was like the fact that he did what he did and succeeded despite all those things against him was really insane. Also, I don't know how he lived as long as he did with that diet he had. Oldman is really amazing in this. He's definitely going to get nominated for an Oscar. He'll probably be the front runner. 
I don't think I've seen a better performance this year so far from a male actor. Is it a chamber piece? Like, is it a, is it sort of a small movie, or is it is it like a a big? Um, I mean, it's mostly about him in Parliament, and but there are some shots of the war, and it's actually a really interesting aesthetic to it in some scenes where it's almost shot like is it like a box play? Is that the right name for it, Mike? Like a black box? Kind of. Where you, there's a couple of scenes. One where he's in an elevator. And the, the, oh, cool. ele- the box of the elevator is illuminated. The rest of the screen is all black. And as it moves up, it's like he's going through uh, darkness. Oh, interesting. And there's another huh. scene where he's pleading with Franklin Roosevelt on the phone for aid. And he, he's in like his little private phone booth. And the, again, the rest of the screen is all black. Oh, that's cool. It's directed by Joe Wright. Kind of modern t- way to shoot it. A lot of long zooms and tracking shots. You know, in the end of the day, it's a classic old school British prestige drama about a great moment in British history. They still make them, right? Yeah, they still do. Okay, good. Ben Mendelsohn, who um, people saw here in uh, Bloodlines and who was in Rogue One, he plays King George VI, and uh, he's really good. Stephen Delane is Halifax. It's chock full of great British actors in this one. That's very interesting, and I won't take up a lot of time, but I watched both of the HBO Churchill movies like in the last month. Uh So The Gathering Storm and Into the Storm. Right. Which were both extraordinary. So they should have called this Darkest Storm. And they yeah, actually geez, should have. And I'm actually having trouble picturing Gary Oldman in that role. That's the thing. You would, but the thing is he's under all this prosthetics that are yeah. really terrific. It should also win an Oscar for makeup, quite honestly, because yeah. you really can't tell that there's a dude that's not a fat dude playing him. So I will tell you that Churchill is going to come up for me at least two more times in this episode. Great. It's going to wow. be a whole, a whole theme. Good. If you like World War II history, if you like British history, if you like great British actors, if you want to see what's going to be one of the best performances of the year, Darkest Hour was really great. It still blows my mind sometimes, even though it shouldn't, to watch these movies and realize that these things happened within the lifetime of people who are still alive. Yeah. You really do get the sense of how the whole world was almost completely destroyed, if not for what happened this one month. Uh, yeah. So this, so as I said, this movie ended with the famous "We'll fight in the beaches, we'll fight in the fields, we'll fight the landing ground" speech, which happened right after the the Dunkirk rescue, and that leads us to our second film, Dunkirk. Wow, Dunkirk cool transition. Wow, which also ended with that speech, right? Or was that the Gathering Storm? No, it ended with the, the kid reading okay. the speech on the paper. Okay, the paper yeah, on the train. Yeah. They probably had something worked out with the Darkest Hour people, because <laughs> that would have been that would that would have been embarrassing. That would be like being caught doing horrible deals with Hitler for years trying to appe- – anyway. That's a Chamberlain joke, everyone. Oh, that's what you have to look forward to for the next couple hours. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, can, I, I can go deep this year. Fluff up uh, that The shackles pillow. are off, Josh. You can't do the Chamberlain jokes on the, on the Pick of the Week show, but he can do them here. Uh, yeah. Freedom. Dunkirk was a movie that at first I, went, I got really excited about, and then I kind of didn't know anything about it. And, and here, comes, here comes my embarrassing, embarrassing admission that I'm going to make to you both, and I hate saying this. Also the people listening. Yeah, I know. In my mind, I thought this was a World War One movie. Ew. And I was watching it, and I go, that's not right. And it's because I realized that I was very, very poorly educated yes. about World War Two and one, really, for that matter. Like, I know a lot that happens from, you know, from the American point of view. And because Dunkirk had nothing to do with America, I really, for some reason, had not been exposed to it very much. I, um, most people in the U.S. haven't. I didn't know anything about it at all. It so happened that I was uh, I'm re- a book that we're going to talk about later. I was reading it and it, uh, I saw the movie like a day before I got to this part in the book in sort of a World War II history kind of book. Anyway, regardless, I, I snapped to and I figured it out and I went, oh, I've just been, you know, you just are living under a mistaken idea that that just never got challenged. And then you go, oh, of course, that was stupid. But I just didn't know. Anyway, this is my favorite movie of the year. 
easily. I've gone back and forth on Chris Nolan a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I, I there, you know, I don't think the Batman movies are perfect, but I also don't think that's a really good example of Chris Nolan in that sense. You loved Interstellar. I loved Interstellar. I could watch it yeah. again right now. I could put it on right now. I didn't love um, Inception. I actually, after I watched Dunkirk and then I watched Interstellar again, then I went and I bought an Inception. I was like, I'm going to give this another shot because I feel like I need to give it a try. It, what's interesting about it is that all the other movies of his that I think of are gigantic. They're, I mean, Interstellar is huge. You know, all the Batman movies are huge. This yeah. really was a very small movie. Yes. It's a very big yeah. thing. And I loved it. And I loved that, you know, one of the things about it is that it took me a little while to figure out what I was watching because they didn't explain anything. No. I was, you know, I was able to put it together. There, but you, there's no talking for the first half hour. No. Basically. And, and there's no explanation. You're just watching basically these three oh, things happen. So good. And it's so subtle and it's so, I mean, I imagine it's it's sort of second nature to a British filmmaker to do the stiff upper lip sort of storyline. But Mark Rylance and his boat storyline was just <laughs> I mean, it was so cliched, but it works so well. She's like, well, we've, we've got to get this done. You know, yeah. so they just do it, you know, and, and then you take it to the next level <laughs> up in the Spitfire where you just get Tom Hardy sort of grunting. I think my favorite Bane thing in, in modern history is that he won't let Tom Hardy talk normally. Yeah. It's already, he's always muffled. Yeah. We're going to put you behind a mask and you're going to talk through that. If I was given a chance to have an inner spirit animal, it's Tom Hardy in that in that Spitfire, just going, "Well, this all sucks. I'm gonna die. I guess I should get on with it." The feeling of being in—I mean, there's—you could spend an yes. entire obviously show on that, but like, just the—you really got the feeling that these things were held together with like screws and tape, basically these planes. For me, when I think about Christopher Nolan, like, yes, I, I think about all the big movies, but I, what I'm most amazed at is his craftsmanship of the media of film and how he. Plays plays with time and how they didn't care at all about explaining what they were doing. And you're sort of realizing as the movie's happening, what kind of dilation he's doing. And it was, I I just, I I really enjoyed that aspect of the movie and watching all these timelines come crashing together. It's funny. I didn't make it to an IMAX screening and I don't like IMAX, but afterwards I was like, I should go see this in IMAX. And I didn't get to, but I, I made a real big point to make sure I saw this in a theater. And I went, I went by myself. I just sat there enraptured the entire time and, and, you know, putting it together and what I was watching. And it's funny about the Spitfire. The thing that gets me is that I want you to imagine that this is, takes place 37 years after the first plane took off and flew for a hundred and whatever feet. Right. Oh, that is right. pretty. That's a that is a nice thirty-seven book. years. I like that. Yeah. I want you to then go backwards and look at what a car looked like thirty-seven years ago. Not that <laughs> weird, is it? I mean, it's it's you know that's a nineteen eighties car. Go, like, oh. and and so like to see that and you know say say that Spitfire is a goddamn cool looking machine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it just is attractive for some reason, and the use of of all the practical filming. Yeah. Right. No CG. That's you know, you think about setting up these shots with these boats. You can't just have a boat go back to one in a couple <laughs> seconds. You know what I mean? It, it, it just for me, I love the fact that he's like, I'm going to make this movie. And and everybody's like, this looks pretty. You're not going to do any CG. You're not. No, I'm going to just make this as difficult as possible. It reminded me a little bit of when uh, Spielberg decided to make Jaws in the real ocean. When I, you know, I just saw that Spielberg documentary and like he didn't make anything easy for himself or frankly, his hundreds of extras and main cast members, because that looked like a really crappy shoot. That looked cool. <laughs> well, I think the, the best thing about the movie, and it was terrific, was that 
as we said, he didn't make it easy for the people in the movie, but or the viewers he didn't explain anything. There was hardly any dialogue, but it was a humongous hit. I, I'm all so over happy the world. to hear that. Yeah. I was just so happy to get treated like an adult who yeah. cared about things that mattered. I'm sure there was a rah rah element to it that maybe if I was British that I would I would catch a little more, but it still seems like a really human story to me. And it, and I know it really happened. He didn't. He didn't. You know. Right. I only have it. one minor quibble with it, and it's really Go minor. On. But I felt like. We needed a better hero shot of all the boats coming to really understand the scope and the scale of how many boats were actually coming across the channel. I kept waiting for that moment of, so the people who don't know the story would realize there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boats mm-hmm. coming. And I don't think we ever really They made a that. point of using a, a lot of the original ships. Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up that sh- those shots, Connor, because that was I, I grew up as a kid uh, sailing with my dad and we would go down this bay when he would look at all these different boats and each one has its own personality. And there was this wonderful sort of nostalgic, almost poetic feeling of being back in, oh, that's that kind of boat, that's that kind of sailor. And all of these people coming together and you realize this entire history that we have of, of being on the water and everybody having their own little kind of vehicle and they're all captains in a different way. And you would see these captains dressed totally different. You know, that's obviously a, like a fishing guy because he's wearing that weird fishing hat, right? And he does tours, right? It was just watching that community come together. Like there was so much... So there's so many quiet moments in that film. I mean, I don't know. We, we could talk about this movie all day, but I, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it came out so early this year. And then, uh, like, poof, it was a memory. What, February? No. Very sad. Not that long. No, ago. it was summer. It was summer. Well, it's been a long year. Let's switch gears really hard now. Completely. Okay, so just to preface this, I'm talking about films that like really hit me in a, in a specific way. And this one, in a good way or a bad way, but this, I saw this movie called Blade of the Immortal by Takashi Miike, a Japanese filmmaker who was famous for lots of different films. He has a, another crazy samurai film. And this is a like the most epic samurai kung fu karate movie that took me back to being a kid watching afternoon tv watching all of the kung fu movies where everybody would have a different fighting style and or they would have these when i was a kid some kid always had like a shuriken or some weird <laughs> japanese knife and yes. you're like <laughs> or some i remember you look that. at these books yeah <laughs> and you look at the books and you have this weird chain with a hook on it and you're like man that looks real painful i wonder how they used it this movie was all about how they used the chain and the hooks and the face and the masks it was incredible blade of the immortal there's one scene where he just on his own d- takes care of probably about 300 different soldiers it's one of those kinds of movies where i'm sorry a, if i missed this is this an animated or a live action? no this is a live action that's why it's so cool i should have that mentioned that at the top it's this it's like one of those movies where it's almost like the like the Dunkirk or the Saving Private Ryan of samurai films, but much more involved and in love with the fantasy of it and the legacy of the, the you know the silent characters that really only speak in the lowest monotone and they only say one word every fifteen or twenty minutes, and you know it's the 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 classic revenge tale of the daughter who wants to hire the samurai that no one's seen for years that lives not unlike Obi Wan Kenobi way in you know out in the in the wasteland. And he grudgingly accepts the job to go and, and take care of the people who murdered her father. And it's all about, you know, in the old kung fu movies, it was all about which school 
was a better school and these school of kung fu people would constantly fight to show that their their technique was the best it's like all of that it's all of that and 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 plus like people wearing basically uh these helmets that look like lampshades and you can't see anything because they're a monk and they have a staff with a hook on it and it's actually some sort of ninja guy it's like that kind of movie (laughs) so if you like those kinds of films uh where the dude literally the poster if you look at the poster there's a star kimura takuya he literally has i'm looking at the poster right now he has nine arrows stuck in him and he's surrounded by dead bodies like it's that kind of movie and what was amazing is it didn't do that great because kimura takuya is apparently the lead pop star of this boy band in japan who is a superstar and they broke up the week before the movie came out, and I guess people were pissed about it, and they didn't see it. So now, this guy this is, is in Japanese. It's all in Japanese. Okay. The subtitles are in English. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I, I saw Mike. We, we went to a film <laughs> festival. I saw him after he saw this movie, and he looked like he was dazed. Like he just, like he himself has just been beaten up by three hundred ninjas. It oh, it's like two good. and a half hours long. It's hundred and forty minutes, and it's called Blade of the Immortal. And you're, if you're looking, if you're, you're, you know, like you're in a relationship. Wasn't and that that you, was a comic book, right? That's a yeah, it's yeah. A, it's I think it is an adaptation of a, yeah. It's an adaptation of a comic. I mean, I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention that. On this <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be it. But you know, it's definitely worth your time, especially if you have that kind of nostalgia for the lone samurai who's got a chip on his shoulder and a, f- a few arrows in his back. So when we were putting the list together, normally we do these shows. We don't talk about the movies that we did special edition shows for, but we're going to talk about a couple of them here. Sure. I, I felt like I couldn't not talk about Wonder Woman. It, more and more, it's looking like this crazy anomaly within the, within the Warner Brothers DC machine. But this movie, I feel like it. I feel like it might have changed people's lives. I think for girls and for even boys, for kids, there's before Wonder Woman and there's after Wonder Woman. I know of. Multiple women who started crying, and will yeah. will cry talking about the movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say that there is a there is a line. It it but that beginning of that line starts with Ray picking up that lightsaber. Yes, the end of the Force Awakens because yes, that sir. feels sure. the same way. Because I, I just watched that again recently. Like, I remember that moment was a thing, and I thought that yes. combined with Wonder Woman, I just thought, oh, that's that's so good for kids. I'm I was just so happy for kids. You know. Yeah. Sure. This is a film I saw twice in the theater, and I've seen at least twice now on Blu-ray. It's still incredibly good. Gal Gadot is incredibly amazing as Wonder Woman. Patty Jenkins directs the hell out of this movie. We discussed Justice League in its own show. We discussed what was wrong with Warner Brothers and how much involvement Jeff Johns may or may not have had. But he co-wrote this movie. I feel like his imprint on comics and his his ethos about superheroes is all over this movie. Mm-hmm. In a way that it's not anywhere near those other films. Well, wasn't Heinberg too? It was I Heinberg mean, like and Johns, yeah. I mean, that's that's certainly. It, I, I, there's no reason that it is one of those things where people have said in the past, like, well, if it works for comics, why don't they get it to do for movies? And I've always been a little dubious of that, but I think in this instance, you're like, all right, you know, for whatever reason, the way that they sell superheroes, you know, works. Well, I mean, the the thing for me, the moments that worked the most in Justice League echoed the best moments of, of Wonder Woman. I mean, for some reason, like those sequences, I, maybe it's because I was remembered remembering what it was like to be back on Paradise Island. And and I do need to just inject like how wonderful Chris Pine was. And yes. their, well, I mean, their, the, the, those two, their chemistry 
was so off unbelievable. Charts. Off the yeah, charts. It's incredible. It's just a pleasure to watch those actors. The scene on the boat <laughs> where they're talking about where they're going to sleep. It's like, it's like, it's, it's wonderful. It's just, it's, a, I had a big grin the end, basically most of the movie. It was, uh, I loved it. Great action movie, great character yeah. piece, great superhero great movie. Mo- World War One movie. Great World War One movie that. And a great, great World War One movie for sure, which is rare. It's even first. It's one movie rarer than I previously thought. And uh, the uh, thing is, the more you talk about it, the more you realize how kind of amazing it pu- it came out the way it did. Yep. Oh yeah. Especially if you compare it to every other movie from that studio. Right. right. And and also we, we talk about popularity, which is not obviously a uh, criteria for talking about a film or, or saying it's good or not. But I mean, domestically, Wonder Woman did as good or better than most of these big blockbusters this year. It did a huge amount of, and also. In a time when studios make 75% of their their money off of outside the U.S., this was a movie that made it was almost 50-50 split between the U.S. and the world. I mean, this was a movie that was incredibly popular in the United States. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what it did for the character Wonder Woman, where everyone was saying about Justice League, well, it's probably going to be crap, but Wonder Woman's in it. I'm yes. going to see it. Like, yes. Wonder Woman is like the hero right now. And that they've been trying to do that for generations to make wonder this she's on she the, is the, the poster star yeah she's in yeah. front of the she's standing the at the superman spot in the most of the posters i mean what an amazing moment this is yeah and it's eminently rewatchable the right. ending is still a little tough but everything up until that point is really terrific and wonder woman really i think was a bright light this year in terms of just movies in general giving women a hero that they could finally rally around i mean it was it was really terrific for sure. Agree. That would bring me to Cars 3. <laughs> <laughs> and you, Good editing uh, here. Great. you what, dear what? listeners, that was not an edit. That's just our natural. No, I mean, just this, this listing, is it's a very interesting curve uh, that we've got. Here. So you might be wondering, both my co-hosts and the people at home, why I'm talking about this. I'm why are you right? talking about this? I have seen a lot of kids' movies this year. I love going to the movies so much that I will take my kids to whatever one they want to see just to be able to go to the movies, and I don't get to go all that often. Just to get Uh, out of the goddamn house. I really like popcorn, to be honest. (laughs) I like movie popcorn, which, you know, if man has been trying to lose weight all year, that is a problem. But Plus, I got the AMC thing where you get the free large popcorn every time with brief... Anyway. Oh, my God. Um, Oh, yeah. Always means butter. That's great. Get the the club thing, man. I've made my money back. You can stick your little one in that tub, I bet. (laughs) Well, actually, I get the big tub, and then I just like bring a couple of things to put other. I can spread it around. I don't want their hands in there because they don't stop eating. Like they just <laughs> keep eating till there isn't anything. Like if they don't breathe, it's weird. I'm pretty much do the same thing. Anyway, saw a bunch of kids' movies this year. Most of them were okay or shitty. I was very much looking forward to Despicable Me three, but it was okay. I saw the Smurfs one that was shitty. Cars three was like the best kids' movie I saw this year, and I, I think, and I know, like I didn't actually see Moana, and I know that's like the. That's the snobby version of best movie and probably is better. Or the other one was Kubo and Kubo, Kobo and whatever in the two strings. Was that this year or last year? My kid wouldn't go. To, I'm talking about mainstream stuff. Yeah. So uh, anyway, Cars is the is the Pixar movie that up until recently was maligned as the bad one. Mm-hmm. I actually like Cars, especially the the first one. The second one's shitty. It's an attempt, though. It's attempted something. Anyway, I've watched it a billion times. Maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, but I'm like, this isn't that bad. If you like Cars, then... I just, don't, I just don't get the universe. I don't understand where the people are. I just this is there's a big nine hundred foot wall between myself and being able to understand these movies. It's, it's an Americana and like like it's an Americana plus plus sort of that car culture. There's a lot of little things in there. It's, I, I don't know. I, I don't the car it. 
Okay, go, go, keep going. Is this, wait, is this the one that they used the um, audio of Paul Newman in? Yes. Yes, it is. I, that was oh, a really cool. interesting story. So apparently when Paul Newman was doing the voices, he did the, it was the first two cars or just the first cars he was in? He was definitely in the first one. I haven't seen the second Apparently one what time. they did was they, as soon as he walked into the booth, they rolled tape and they never stopped until he, he left. So even in between takes, it was recorded. Uh-huh. So what they did was they took a bunch of his audio of just stories he was telling about you know his car racing because he, race, he was a racing yeah, car driver. Yeah. They used that in the movie. That was a really interesting story about that, reading that. It made me kind of want to see it, just to hear the stories. So that's a really good... I mean, it, when you go back to look at like what at the time we said cars... Well, I want to say this, 2003, maybe five, somewhere in there. You know, I saw it before I had kids because I went to go see every Pixar movie at that point. And the cast is great. It's an amazing cast. It's got Paul Newman in it, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so getting to this, this had Paul Newman and, and Chris Cooper and, uh, you know, like it has, has good people doing it. And, and I just, uh, the first act is garbage. But after that, it really, it's, it's oddly enough. Because if you watch the trailer, I'm going to get to the point. If you watch the trailer, it looked like this is a sad, dark movie about the end of Lightning McQueen's racing days. And who wants to take their kids to see that? <laughs> but it really, it actually is a movie sort of about moving on. It is about the end of Lightning McQueen's racing days. And they talk about like what it is that's important about racing. And racing is a metaphor for whatever it is that's important to you. And, you know, what? learning to move on to the next thing, you know, and, and, and you get older. It's, you know, it's like Toy Story 3, same kind of deal, you know. And he realizes, like, oh, he's not going to be able to compete. He's not as fast as he used to be. And he, you know, finds a, a, a there's a new racer who sort of takes over the mantle. And it's it's sweet and it's charming and it's it's nice and it's well done. Were you weeping at the end? I don't. I, weeped, I wept a lot this Morning, year. Mourning your lost youth. Yeah. Yeah, that had a lot to do with it. I probably did. I'm not going to say I didn't. I don't remember for sure. No one to blame you. But I liked it. Second and third acts, I walked out and I was like, Lynn's, that was really good, right? She's like, it was good. First act was bad. You know, but like you had you had the car, the dead car talk guy was in it too. And you're like, oh, that's so sad. It was dead Paul Gosh, Newman. That, that's a bummer. Really? <laughs> yeah, there, there was a lot <laughs> wow. of that. George Carlin was in the first one. He's not, you know, so wow. there's, there's a bunch of those in it. And you sort of... It really is. It's a bit of a lost youth thing, but you know the kids liked it just for the racing stuff and and whatever the normal stuff. But I, I thought it was pretty good. Now I'm going to give them credit for it. Go to hell if you don't think so. I'm really looking forward to this discussion now. Yeah, I bet you are. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, you can, but you can do whatever you like here. Okay, that's a preview for Blade Runner 2049, which was my one of my picks for if this year. If you want to do it like correctly, just don't say anything for the next eight minutes. Well, that's the miracle of this movie, because I was talking to this guy, Robert Meyer Burnett, who uh, made he's a filmmaker and he's he uh, made free enterprise. And we were talking about Blade Runner 2049. And he was like, look, this movie is about a guy who walks around for a couple of hours blowing people up and you can't take your eyes off of it. And I and I, I, I kind of got to say, I agree. Agree with them. This is obviously the long. I don't know. It's it's. I guess a sequel. I guess it is a oh, sequel totally to the yeah. yeah. And, but but what? How do you say? D- Denise Villeneuve. Uh, Denise. Directed. Denise Villeneuve. Denise Villeneuve. And uh, wow. And I got to say, like I've always been really, I was really hesitant about it. I'm not the biggest Ryan Gosling fan. I mean, I'm not not a fan, but I'm not really a fan. But for me, I was mostly interested and hopeful that going back into the world of the Blade Runner that you know Ridley Scott created. No. Wait, yes. No, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. So many years ago, I had a, a brain fart there. 37 really years ago, say, the exact was, distance between uh, the Spitfire and the invention of flight. Go on. <laughs> wow. 
This is good. We should try to do this for all the films. Mm-hmm. It's the only movie that's made me ever feel for basically a robot. I mean, this is like an inverted sort of Pinocchio tale. I'm sure many of the people listening here are like going can talk about this film in a more intelligent way. But for me, this was kind of this wonderful, atmospheric, incredible visit to this someone's imagination of uh, what this alternative future, or maybe not so alternative. Let's just say San, San Diego doesn't make it out that well, being the, tra- the trash heap down there. But this is Ryan Gosling looking to find himself, and you get... I think Harrison Ford's one of I think one of his best roles, one of some of his best work that he's had in many many years, and I re- I know it was long, it was 164 minutes, but I thought this was one of the most beautiful films. I thought the uh, Benjamin Wolfitt's music was incredible. He's one of Hans Zimmer's pupils, just like the guy who did Mad Max, and Theo Green's sound design. Speaking of seeing a movie in the theaters, if it is still playing in some theaters. If you have not seen this movie, you must see it in a theater. Um, it's still playing. It's still it, playing. It same, 7 p.m. Uh, show is still on. Right, No matter what time, it, what day it is. It's Yes, it's a very long movie. But I, you know what? I got to say, I've seen shorter movies, and I've had to go to the bathroom. I never felt any kind of pressure from a urinary point of view. I was completely enthralled by this movie. Put that I on was... the DVD cover. <laughs> well, I mean, no, Ju- Justice League well, felt longer than this movie did. For sure. So to me, this is one of those movies that I point to where it's like, it doesn't matter how long a movie is if the movie's good. And I had the same reaction you did, Mike, and so did Megan, is that this movie could have been twice as long and we would have been fine with it. I love the world. And I, who's the guy from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy who's... Uh, Chris Pratt. No, no, Drax. the guy who played... <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the wrestling. There's so many good. There's so many good roles here. There's so many great moments. But the visualization, the art direction, it's just this atmospheric piece about the very nature of existence and like the nature of relationships and that's the whole notion of the questions that it poses. Can a robot fall in love with a hologram? <laughs> I mean, and the idea of realizing. Maybe I am human and eventually re- realizing not and how much pain Kay, playing by Ryan Gosling, goes through. I, I just felt this movie was fantastic. I, it stayed with me. At first, I wasn't sure how I felt about it. But as the days and the weeks passed and as I talked about it with people, I realized that for me, it was I thought about this movie more than any other movie that I saw this year. And uh, I found it terrifically enjoyable. I, I could have been there for another half hour. I, part of me hoped there's a four hours director's cut that comes with a pillow and, and, and like a Stein, a future Stein. But like, let's, I mean, you got to say, did you like Harrison Ford in it, Josh? I mean, he was amazing in it. So I have a couple of points to make. Some of the things that I will agree with you about are that Drax was good. It Isn't was it? very pretty. It's, I mean, obviously, it was super astonishing to look at, but also it took very heavily from the, I think, the visual look of the original movie. So it was of a piece. If, question before I keep going. How do the two of you feel about the original Blade Runner? Love it. I really love it. I'm a fan yeah. of it. Yeah. I never got it. I've oh. seen I've seen many versions of it. I made first time I saw it was a was a projected new cut of the of the director's cut whenever that was like ninety five six something like that. So I like made the right. effort to see it in the right way. I've watched other versions of it. I get it, but I don't I don't care. But I thought I'd go see this because I had to. And yes, this was the best Harrison Ford performance I've seen in a long time. Certainly, including the Force Awakens, who I thought I thought he was actually into that. He was really acting in this, and I yeah. know that it's terrible. So I was like, oh my god, he's 
he's acting in this. He's playing yeah. a character, which was <laughs> shouldn't be unique, but I'm I, sorry it was. I was just really happy that it wasn't the second stop in Harrison Ford's Kills All Your Childhood Icons uh-huh. trip. But also, I was really thrilled by the scene in which he was he was tied up in that cruiser ship, ship oh, or whatever while yeah. it was sinking and they were fighting in the foreground and he was in the background just trying not to drown and it was such mm-hmm. an unshowy un movie star thing to do to have your your Harrison Ford yeah. in the background of this entire scene basically almost drowning it was really gutsy to get to put your star in that position yeah so all that being said like all the parts it just it didn't add up for me like i just i i didn't like it i didn't care i wanted it to be over <laughs> and and like everybody who like I, I can see why people I liked uh, you know I liked uh, Arrival but I don't know that I got the point and, and it didn't it did it ultimately didn't matter to me and I, I just wasn't I just felt like there was a line being crossed from being ar- artistically like really taking your time to like why are they doing this like you don't need to do all this to make your point because you've taken so long to do that. I don't know what your point is. I like on the, on the surface, I like that they didn't give us the answer. They didn't say for sure Deckard was, I thought if I'm not, I'm not wrong about that. Right. They didn't give you a final answer on whether Deckard was a replicant or not. Right. Well, that, I mean, uh, yeah, that's correct. I mean, everybody disagrees with it. Ridley Scott sure. says yes. Everybody else says no. I felt that he's human, and but you know, then yeah, that's a whole I mean, thing. This is a new he's, life form that we're talking about. He's got a, he's I, got I just, a daughter. Yeah. Right? I mean, you have a, you just, have a, that, you have a yeah, but all that stuff goes, you know, you know it doesn't matter. Movie. That's I love. I love these kinds of yeah. But keep going. Sort of, but ultimately, like maybe it's maybe I just didn't care about Ryan Gosling's robot character. Maybe that was yeah. it. Maybe it's like it could be that. Maybe it's totally. like Gangs of New York, and that ultimately, like I wish that Leonardo DiCaprio's wasn't the lead of that movie, or be one of my favorite movies. In this, like I didn't know who I was. I, I don't know what the story was, or or why it was happening, or care. Well, you might have fallen asleep in the middle. Maybe that's I what might, happened. Uh, no, because I was awake for the whole six days. <laughs> I, I will. I yeah. I get it. I mean, if it, it, it's I one of those films, bathroom, really. and I'm not entirely sure they didn't pause it because <laughs> nothing had changed on screen. I, I think if if especially if you didn't really care about the first one, I think you know yeah, this yeah. falls into a specific kind of groove that is that I think on one end, one, someone's meditative sort of meditation on existence can be someone's overblown self-indulgence, right? It's, a, it's, it's two sides of a very sort of juicy coin. I think my thing was, I was really hopeful because Blade Runner, you know, obviously very influential in terms of sure. how we see the would. future. But what was great is that they didn't cheapen that contribution from the original film. They built upon it, and I didn't think they went out of bounds on it. They, I think they expanded it in a very natural way. The idea of just a, for me, the shot of like this tree, this dead tree being held up by you know steel cables, just for the illusion of some sort of nature. Like there's little moments like that. The, there are these almost like production stills, almost like the memories these that the, the replicants yes, get. Yes, it was a production still. Yeah, <laughs> but it's still in production. But for me, in terms of a full movie-going experience, not unlike Dunkirk, which by the way had great sound design, amazing sound design. I just loved being in the theater. Oh, the sound design, I thought uh, Blade Runner was the best of the year for sure. Theo Green, unbelievable, best of the year. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but definitely something that stuck with me for. Uh, 
it still sticks with me right now. I'm I'm actually sticking to it right now. It's, it's a stuck. really fun movie to troll people with, though. That's yeah, it's good. Yeah, you, you'll be very popular at parties. Oh, I oh, thought that totally. movie sucks because <laughs> that's the guy I want to be. I've learned that yeah, word. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do more of that. So three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri was a movie I was really looking forward to. It had a really great trailer, really funny trailer. It stars Frances McDormand as the, a mother whose daughter was murdered and she, the police haven't solved the case. So she rents three billboards outside of town to call out the sheriff. And from the trailer, you get the sense that this is going to be a, like a tour de force Frances McDormand performance. She's really fierce and funny in the trailer. But actually, in actuality, the movie itself is kind of dark and sad and... As great as she is in this movie, and she's really great, it's sort of sneakily a two-hander with her and Sam Rockwell, who his character starts off in one place. He's the very recognizable, racist, small-town deputy, where by the end, he's completely changed. And she's a great character, but she doesn't have an arc. She's basically grieving for her daughter, whereas his character completely changes through the course of the movie because of what happens in the movie. Uh, to the point where they have a really interesting relationship by the end. It, I don't want to spoil it too much because it, it just came out and most, most people haven't seen it, but by the end of it, you're kind of astonished by Sam Rockwell's character and his performance to the point where she sort of is overshadowed. He is such a good actor. Like Sam Rockwell for me is like, in terms of looking at people's careers, nice quiet careers, but great roles. Like for me, like anything he does, uh, pretty much anything he does, I, I've seemed to enjoy. Well, this is, I, a, this I, that's is cool. a force. I'd love to see the two of them together. That's his, really, really cool. Also, his character read, reads comics and wears an uh, ir- not irredeemable, but the other one t-shirt. Ir- incorruptible? Oh, my God. Ir- ir- yeah, I don't remember. Great cast. Francis McDormand, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, uh, Peter Dinklage, John Hawks, Delco, Ivanek. Features the, <laughs> my second favorite joke of the year in a movie. We're going to get to the movie that had my favorite joke of the year. But wow. Really funny, but also really kind of dark and sad. Strangely enough, takes place in the year 2002 and features the actor Lucas Hedges, who was the son in Manchester by the Sea last year. Oh, wow. One of two films that we're going to talk about that took place in 2002 and featured Lucas Hedges. Well, wow, he's really got the... Uh, very bizarre that. sort of on-the-nose thing. I was, I was, <laughs> I'm thinking it's because... My own theory is that because 2002 was still sort of recognizably modern, but it was before everybody had smartphones. Mm-hmm. So you can tell a story with people who aren't constantly just looking at their phones and have it still feel like it's somewhat modern. Yeah. And also it's post 9-11, so people are still sort of on it. It was an interesting time in the, in the American psyche. Yeah. It's a great movie about grief, yeah. and it's a great movie about justice. It's a movie that upends your expectations, what you think it's going to be based on what you, that you've seen in the trailer. And you think you figured the movie out, and it actually goes a different way. Uh, it was, I, oh, it was oh. really terrific. This is the Martin McDonough yeah. movie. He's, yeah. an, he's an incredible playwright. He, he did yeah. it in Bruges. He directed it, too. He wrote yeah. and directed this. Yeah. That's, wow. Cool. Very cool. Very good. So, in hypocritical news, um, there was this movie that I saw when I was young, and I loved it so much. It meant a ton to me. And then they waited a really long time, and they made a sequel to it um, (laughs) in the same vein. And I was really worried that it wouldn't be good, but it turned out that I just loved it. (laughs) Well done. You you inverted trolled me. That was amazing. Yep. Um, If I can can get myself before you can get me, then it's going to (laughs) happen. So I'm talking about T2 train spotting. Ron and I did a show fully about this because as I walked out of the theater, I wrote to him and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it was everything I wanted. Before I saw Dunkirk, I was like, well, that's my favorite thing that I've seen this year. And I'm letting Dunkirk keep its spot because there is definitely a level of nostalgia that goes along with this. 
But to me, it feels really earned. And like, so you can go back and listen to that show. We talked about it, but it was a super gush fest, really. I have the disc of this sitting on my cabinet. I am so annoyed that I have not seen this because I, I saw it in the theaters when it came out. I read the book, which yep. if you have looked at the book, dear listener, it's written in like in Scottish brogue. Like you have to some of these some of the lines you have to read out loud because it sounds like the speech. And mm-hmm. I was so looking forward to this movie because Trainspotting is one of my all-time favorites. I play the soundtrack all the time, and I'm so thrilled to hear that you liked it. That's great. I, I, I made a special trip. You know, like I, when I saw the trailer, I got super excited because uh, this is a movie that for me, Trainspotting uh, for me, like I saw it in 1995 is one of the first films that I saw like after I got to college, you know, where I was a you know yep. TV major. I was t- I took a lot of film classes is when this became important to me. And it was, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of foreign or indie films or let alone foreign indie films when I, where I grew up. So this was a, a real uh, bellwether for me and sort of a marker. And I loved it. And I've, I've n- not even in that sense, like I watched it and I, I loved it because of when I saw it or whatever. I've watched it dozens of times since then. I, it is that that movie blows me away every time I see it uh, for, at every level. Screenplay, production, acting, editing, soundtrack. I, I love that film. And it is a heartbreaker of a film. It it's is a dark, a dark not happy movie. But it's brimming with so much character and like that contrast of life and death at the same time that it, it means a ton to me. It's one of my favorite films of all time. That poster was on the wall of seventy five percent of the dorm so rooms I went into. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, now, now right Josh, is, Marley legend. Yeah. is this the same story as the book Porno, which was a sequel to Train Spotting by Irvine Welsh, which I, I've also read? I have not read either. Oh, you got, oh, you got to read the books. I mean, I hate. To I know, that but guy. there is a level of some things where, like, I love the thing. Yeah, I get it. And but so, oh, yeah, this is why I, I haven't read the thing. Jaws book. So, okay, I get it. I just I, I, yeah, because there was actually a a, a book sequel to Train Spotting called Porno, and I I guess I can go research it. But I was curious to know if this was actually that book because it's a very a very different story, but it's all the same characters. It was so, and is the music yeah. as good? Yeah, to you, yeah. I, I don't know that it stood out to me a ton, other than like it had the same feel. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what a track was from that because I was really focused on the idea that they made that decision to wait twenty years, yeah. have the same people, and and really good acting. It, it's a, they were those characters again, and I oh. I've seen you and McGregor in a lot of things, and I, I've seen him as himself. I spent you know whatever those two documentaries are about him on a motorcycle driving around the world. Love that. Like, oh, yeah. I know who he is, and I don't think he's the world's greatest actor. I think there's times where I he totally loses me. But in this, you know, he was Renton again, and he was Renton uh-huh. 20 years later with all that baggage behind him. Johnny Lee Miller, same deal as Sick Boy. You know, I, you know, when Begbie shows up, Begbie is the most terrifying character in modern cinema. He <laughs> yes. is such a scary, sociopathic, you know, <laughs> character. And I, I was just, I was 100% in the whole time. I, I haven't seen it again. I kind of don't want to see it again because I loved watching it that one time. Like I, I had to drive down to Boston because there no one was showing it in my state, you know, like, and I went into a theater on a Tuesday night. There was nobody there, you know, in the middle of Boston. And, and so I cool. just was, it felt like it was made for me. I was like, oh, it was just yeah. such a good experience. So it, it just lived up to all of the hype that I wanted it to be. That's great. And rare, uh, you can rarely say that. So that's cool. Yeah. Especially um, Another well, talk, speaking of hype, like, and this yeah. this is a movie that uh, like like um, Josh, I've only seen once, and it was a while later. This I'm talking about Get Out, 
which is a, a real departure for me personally. I don't. Go, I'm not a real horror film uh, person. I don't. I just don't. I don't get it. I don't like it. We're all with it, you. But you know, written and directed by Jordan Peele. It's a Bloomhouse picture. Jason Bloom producer. This movie, and maybe it's just because we're in LA and everybody's talking about movies. The whole thing had so much buzz. Yes. And. Like, you could not go anywhere without people talking about it. And I really didn't even know what it was about. So we, we you know, we rented it. And, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a story of a family visit that goes very, very wrong. That, for me, was when I watched it, I was thrilled to see a story go just go completely off the rails, but also on the rails at the same time. That really made me see this wonderful take on relationships, on race, on prejudice, on just scary white people. I watched it and I, I was, and then I became one of those get out people where I'm like, you really do have to see it. It does actually live up to the hype. It is actually that good. It's super fun to watch. Don't worry. It says it's a horror film, but it's it's not really a it's horror film. A thriller. Thriller. It's more of a thriller than yeah. a horror film. Yeah. Horror is the yeah. wrong word the whole time. Well, you know how they're always doing now these, now in the IMDb, it's a horror mystery thriller. There's no such, so yeah, it's it's 8% horror. It's mostly thriller, 92%. I don't know what the yeah. mystery is, except. Well, the white people are mystery, mysterious, I guess. No, the, the, how come he doesn't remember? Or, There's a lot. Yeah, the mysteries are the, the missing people and then, you know, why. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, I found myself really impressed with Jordan Peele's technical prowess. Yes. Yeah. It, it did not seem like a first-time director's movie. And I know he did his skit comedy show for years. And, he, I mean, that really teaches you a lot about framing a shot and making a story visually. But, I mean, Jesus, it did not seem like the first time somebody shot a movie. This movie, just, man, we were talking about budgets earlier. They made this movie for about $5 million. And what, for Jeez. whatever reason, for, it hit a chord. And worldwide, it's made $252 million. Like, just because of, and this is the deal, good storytelling, great acting, Great writing and just an idea that they completely committed to, that has that was has never been told in such a way, and I think maybe I don't know if it's imp, his improv background or just the way he looks at the world because I love that Key and Peele show and I laugh all the time when I watch it, but to see a little bit differently, a, another insight in the way he looks at things, it was just magical. And frankly, from to see something from sort of an African American point of view. And in sort of this dark fantasy, it's just, I was, I'm blown away. It's one of those films, as, as I talk about it, I'm remembering it more and more. And it's an easy recommendation uh, if you, for over the holidays, if you haven't seen it, if you resisted the, uh, the talk. So here I go again. <laughs> this one's tough. I saw it, again, not my type of movie, just like you said. I thought it was really good. I didn't think it was the greatest thing ever. However... The two things that I liked about it um, was one, the perspective is different from every other, every other movie. This is the same thing I noticed after Wonder Woman is I started thinking back and I was like, there's, there's so few movies that are not from a white dude's point of view in my life. The movies that I love that that alone makes it interesting. It was a, it was a different perspective, period, end of story. So that is interesting. The other thing that I thought it was valuable for is I absolutely love the conversation that followed after it. I mean, literally the conversation I had after it. Yep. Why is this a thing? What is it about it that is making us talk like that? What are the signifiers? Why were they trying to show us what they were showing us and what were they trying to say? And being able to parse that and try to work it out, I, that was immensely satisfying and really a great sort of antecedent to the movie. And then sort of the national conversation that follows it that apparently 40% of the country doesn't give a shit about. But 
other than that, like I thought, I thought that that part of it was really valuable. The yeah. film itself didn't really stick with me in that way. Not for any fault of its own, like, but it had like a little bit of like, you know, Bradley Whitford as the goofy, you know, sure, I see villain like, that doesn't speak to me. It just has to do with the type of film. It's it not is. Your type it was, of movie. No, yeah. it totally isn't. But I liked everything around it. So I felt shitty. I was like, I'm supposed to love this and I don't. But, you know, not for the reason and that. I, and, and, you know, I think maybe that's part of it. I mean, like yeah. maybe a movie is more than just in, for some movies. It is the resulting conversation. It is. Oh, this is a different point yeah. of view. And it, it becomes kind of like the movie becomes more than itself. And and then, you know, and so, you know, for these sort of these kinds of conversations, like as we talk about the entire year, I think a lot of these movies are about the feelings that we have around them, the conversations we've had, the realizations that we have after seeing them. But yeah, but straight ahead from a storytelling point of view, it's it's a pretty simple yeah. and even simplistic movie. But con- and, and, conceptually, it goes in cool places. Well, yeah, and not new ground, really. If you, if right, you take sure. out the element of race. It's, but it is, you know, it's not anything different, but it is race. So it is the strength that I'll give it is that when you examine it afterwards and you think about the choices made by the actors, by the script, by the director, there's a lot of conversation behind like, what, well, what's this choice about? You know, what, yeah. why do we, why do we think he did that? And trying to parse that out was, a, was a ton of fun for me. So that's not really I, a bad. Re- oh, I think that's great. I mean, remember when you were a kid and you would see movies and then you would talk about them for hours with your friend going over yep. each Part. I mean, we don't get to do that a lot. We're always in rush. But this movie made room in it made room in your space for conversation, yep. which is a, is a huge feat. Yep. So amongst the many terrible things that happened this year, and the, there are very many of them, Harry Dean Stanton died. Totally. He's an actor who was always great in everything and elevated everything he was in, even the shittiest, schlockiest movie. You could be assured that his scenes would be really good. He's, he's never got to be the leading man. He was the leading man in Paris, Texas. But he's been one of those great utility players. But this year saw the release of Lucky, which was a movie he was the lead in. Uh, it would turn out to be his last film. Directed by John Carroll Lynch, the great character actor. He's a Zodiac killer. <laughs> he, maybe he is. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> really small film about a cantankerous 90-year-old man living in the Southwest who is wrestling with his own mortality. And it doesn't really have a plot... He just kind of goes from scene to scene talking about life, and it feels very autobiographical. And if you know anything about Harry Dean Stanton's life, there's a lot of similarities. His character, World War II career is the same. And you get the sense that a lot of these are stories that he has told people or he he, he has imbued his own experiences into. But it's just a lot of discussions about life and what is important and what is on the other side and what isn't on the other side. And uh, Harry Dean Stanton, David Lynch, Ron Livingston, Ed Bigley Jr., Tom Skerritt, really great cast of character actors and and also David Lynch, who was really great in the movie. (laughs) Really quiet, really interesting, and a great sort of testimonial to a terrific actor who is captivating on screen even at 90. And I'm not going to spoil to say a really sweet... An amazing final shot. If it's, it's the last time you see him on screen ever, it's a great shot. Wow, that's great. If you like him as an actor, this is a must-see. He's, you know, his character's a bit of an asshole, a bit of, bit of a jerk, but funny and interesting. And there's a really great scene in the middle where he sort of lets his guard down and is vulnerable with, with a character you don't expect. And it's a really great scene, too. It's just a really great character piece for Harry Dean Stanton to uh, wrap up his career with. And really sad because it came out right after he died. So it was, it was, watching it was really tough. Really great movie. Really great. And he gets to sing in it. Oh, he's, he was such a good singer. Wow. Yeah. Really good stuff. So the best Judd Apatow movie. 
maybe of all time. Wasn't directed by Judd Apatow, but I guess he was involved with it enough that we can call that the big sick. Sure. Um, this was one that I really uh, wanted to make time to get out. My wife and I actually got to go out and see it together. Date night. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's a date night movie if ever there was one. But also, totally. it's a really, really good and funny flick. This movie that had my favorite joke of the entire year. I think I laughed for two straight minutes after the joke happened. Is it the is it the nine eleven joke? Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's a good joke. Great. It was so good and so unexpected and such a joke that no one else can really make. And I yeah, I think I missed about two minutes of dialogue afterwards. Yep. And even even in the theater, like Megan looked at me and she was like, "Are you okay?" I was like, "It's a really funny joke." <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, like I'm I'm queer for Camille. I mean, like he. He's great. I've been a big fan of his ever since. I've been, whenever he shows up in anything, it's wonderful. You know, every time he showed up in, in Portlandia, every time, you know, obviously Silicon Valley, he's just super talented, smart, and funny. He wrote this, you know, with his, I guess she's his wife now. You know, this yes. is basically their story. Uh, she's not the person portrayed. She's not the actress. She's the writer. So it's but not it's the about, same person. It's about what happened to her. It's I mean, about it's a, them. It's a- which it's is a, a hell dra- of a story. Dramatized version of it. Yeah, and, and his, his story is just super interesting. And again, this is going to be a thing that's going to come up a bunch of, bunch of times. And I'm not harping necessarily on the idea that, like, we need more diversity. But what I found is that when people are given that that microphone, that megaphone, uh, and we get to see a different point of view and things, it's just it's interesting. And I find so many things are boring. So Camille's point of view is interesting. And her point of view being within, you know, his his world is interesting. There's another there's a show that we're gonna talk about, the same same thing. We just talked about get out, that kind of thing. It just delivered on all it was like I, you know, Judd Apatow movies, written or produced, have have gotten to be a little long in the tooth for me. And I, I want him to be a guy whose stuff I love, but it got off base at some point but uh you know this just everything about it was great all the way through this is not about avatar but i think he's a really great producer yeah yeah i i I, I don't necessarily love his movies that he directs but he's got a really great eye for a story apparently kamel went to pitch a different movie completely i think it was like a vampire movie and in the and he said no this is no good tell me something else and then he just told him the story said this is your movie i think his movies uh you know what was the one with uh michael Sarah and and Jonah Hill. But anyway, he, his movies he produces, I think he's really great at f- finding Super people bad. and finding stories and putting people in the front of the yeah. camera as leads who other people wouldn't necessarily give the leading role to. Yeah. I think he's a really good producer. I love yeah. the the notion of family here and the different kinds of family. I thought Holly Hunter and Roy Romano. Oh, were they were so good. So oh, my God. Good. I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, Ray Romano. He needs awards. Yeah. This was, that was a like a reinvention of him for me. Yeah. And then it's so great to see, it, you know, uh, Zoe Kazan is comes from Hollywood royalty. She's sure. Ilya Kazan's granddaughter, and then just to see that it's sort of very symbolic because Camille is such like this voice of this new, like this new kind of storytelling, and that, like you said with Get Out, it's just sort of like a different type of voice, and it's sort of cool that she's along for the ride in a way, you know. And then, oh my God, that's rumbling is my neighbors upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> it's really frustrating. I'll get into it yeah, later, but. But it's it's yeah. But for me, it was just quiet. But it also for me, gave me a real insight into what it's like being single these days, which looks really <laughs> really crappy. I'm really happy that I don't have to deal with any of this shit that these guys have to deal with. They, <laughs> I thought they that seem to be. But what a brave movie this was! Just to just good to go for it, and it's so nice to say to sort of say, hey, this is we're all people here. And I thought just watching the different family interactions and then. You know, growing up in a religion where you're like, 
yeah, that's not my thing, but I can't tell my parents, so I just pretend like I'm praying and play uh, on my phone for five minutes. You know, whatever it is, there's all these little notes that it hit about being a first or second generation person in this country, but coming from that background, mm-hmm. like just how much of a microscope every aspect of your life is, for, but nobody knows anything about you. And so what a cool sort of quiet way to reveal just how human and how, how everybody really is just kind of screwed up in the different ways, but kind of screwed up in the same way as possible. I'd hate to put it on him, but really, like, I don't know how you watch something like this and be like, fucking Muslims. Like, come yeah, on. it's just it's so and I, I don't need to be told that I get it, but it's just it's it's people are humans. And well, it Kamel, you know. I, I like it. He seems. He seems really down to earth. My proof point there is that he tweeted out that he was really excited to go on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And I replied back to him saying that it was so cool to see someone else really excited about that because that's always been my fantasy. And he favorited my reply. So I'm just (laughs) saying he seems like a very nice gentleman. What a cool thing. And also and also a little insight into just how difficult it is to be a comedian, which I think everybody should remember. It's a really, really hard job. Michael Showalter, the director, should get some credit too, because I think that the tone, of right. it, the tone of it yeah. was uh, a fine line to walk. It was laugh out loud funny, and then it was gut punchingly, I don't want to say uh, sad, but emotional. Yeah, the lead character's not always that sympathetic. No, yeah, I mean he's try, he is, he's good. He becomes good, but it's not like he's just this prince. You know, he's not a hero. He's no angel. He's a normal guy who is, you know, makes mistakes, makes dumb decisions. He's ultimately, I think, always trying to do his best, but. It doesn't always work out that way. I just thought this was a really terrific movie. This is one of my favorites of the year by far. Another film that I saw at the same film festival that Connor and I were lucky enough to go to, Fantastic Fest in Austin, was a movie that's now available on Netflix. Wait, it's hold, called so this, wait hold on. Before you tell a name, this might be our first ever streaming film. Oh, you're right. Because this is not okay. a movie that went to theaters. This is a movie that went straight to Netflix. Yeah, I guess it's, it may, or it may, yeah, it's probably not playing at a theater near you. We saw it, a premiere of it on a big screen, but that might be the largest screen you'll see it on. But this is its a very interesting movie. It's a sort of an action piece, but to say that really puts it, it, puts it in, a, in a sort of a weird category. This is an action crime movie called Wheelman, directed by a guy named Jeremy Rush, who also wrote it. And we saw a Q&A after, and Jeremy Rush was a PA, a production assistant, who worked on some movies with Frank Grillo, who's the star of Wheelman, and the producer, Joe Carnahan. And they got to talking, and they decided to make this very taut, very sharp, very well-edited movie, which is basically this incredible, almost real-time sequence of events that happens in Boston one late night. And it's about a guy who's a getaway driver, not unlike the, the other movie. Baby Driver. But for me, when I, I, I put this on this list, because it was such a, a cool example of really deciding to make a certain kind of movie and doing it very, very well. It's not flashy. A lot of it's just Frank Grillo driving on the phone, but it's incredibly well edited. It, it's both a, a small movie and a sprawling movie. It's really about a dad and his daughter. And basically a guy just having a really, really difficult night. Bad night. Not a good night. Real bad night. Getting caught up in a a botched bank robbery, a a mob guy, and a a lot of other CD characters. And all he's really trying to do is figure out who the hell his daughter is going out with that night and not to get home too late. So it's a really wonderful juggling act. 
And I thought I don't know, you know Frank Grillo. I know he was in he's been in lots of films, but I, as far as I know, this is his first leading man performance. And I thought he he really played this kind of role, which is a grizzled getaway driver, uh, really really well. He was terrific. He had the really, you know, here comes the pun. He had to really switch gears. Yeah, a lot. Even within within a scene, he was on the phone with his daughter. He was on the phone with the mob guy. He was on the phone with the guy who set him up. And it was just the press of a button that would change his complete demeanor about who he was talking to and how much stress he was under and how angry he was. And this is all happening on the same continuous shot from the camera in the car. And he, it was a real, really good performance from Frank Grillo, who most people probably know as the Crossbones character in the Marvel movies. And all while he's driving. And all while he's really driving. Yeah. If you like cars, you like car chase movies. If you like that kind, if you like Baby Driver, or even if you were disappointed in Baby Driver like I was, this was a really fun driving movie. You know, we've been talking a lot about making films and, and the craft of films, and it was really kind of neat to see a movie that was the perfect length. It was like it was. It's just there's no there's no fat on it, and it, it's just. It tells the right story. It tells it really well. There's some really great performances. It's got a lot of action, but it's all earned. I started watching Baby Driver. I haven't seen the whole thing yet, but I, I really enjoyed this take on the kind of getaway driver story. Of, 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 I guess there were two of them this year. I haven't been able to get over the fantasy porn of PA talks to director and star on set and starts to make a movie with them. Yeah, yeah that's probably I mean, what that's, happened. That's, it's that's, crazy. I mean, a, a year I after was a PA. Yeah, and, uh, that's, uh, you know, don't talk to the talent. <laughs> yeah, it, it was pretty incredible. Wasn't he, it was wasn't, like he, they, wasn't he Frank Grillo's driver? Is that why he got to talk to him? I think that might, yeah, that might, that's, he got to know him over time. And, you, yeah. know, you know, I got a story. I got a script, you know. Hey, you don't say that. Happens. You're going to be cooler. It was neat, you know, and it was like, you know, it was just a real people. It was people. It was nice to see somebody, people trying to make a movie that wasn't going to be this huge gangbusters. And it it sounded like they got really great support from Netflix. And, you know, it was really interesting watching, you know, seeing what Netflix was doing at this film festival. But it's cool. Like a lot of people would never go and see this necessarily in the theater. And that's kind of one of the cool things about Netflix is that they can fund small stories like this. And almost like if you really wanted to see a cool independent film that really would never be made by anybody else, Netflix does provide that kind of service. And so uh, definitely a recommendation for you, a movie called Wheelman. Did you get a job at Netflix in the, over the weekend? I know. That was really good. I was really impressed by myself at that point. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing I mean, a lot of media who stuff. Who isn't? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You guys are in L.A. I'm, I'd be yeah. saying the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> They're listening right now. So Lady Bird is a film that is getting a lot of buzz right now at the end of the year. It's apparently got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is like only the second time it's ever happened. It's the debut of Greta Gerwig's, it's her writing and directing debut. And uh, she's an actress of some renown. It stars uh, Saoirse Ronan, who was in the, the movie Brooklyn a couple of years ago. She's an Irish actress. Oh, yeah. It's a small story about a high school girl. She's a senior in high school living in Sacramento in 2002. Hmm. I see where this is going. Also stars that kid from Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> but she's living in Sacramento in 2002. She feels trapped by her life. She's one of the poor kids at, the, at a rich Catholic school. And her mother, Laurie Metcalf, is smothering. And Laurie Metcalf is so good in this. And it's not a showy role. That's redundant. She's always good, but the thing is, I was thinking about it while watching it. She should be nominated for an Oscar for this. She probably won't because she doesn't really get like a big speech or a big scene. It's mostly this really great, subtle work throughout the entire movie where you watch her struggling with this daughter she has who is, they want to have a relationship, but they just keep fighting and it's, 
it's hard to both of them. But then again, they also sort of snap back to mother-daughter stuff. It's really interesting dynamic between the two of them. It's not something I've ever really seen before. It felt very real and raw. The da- interesting note, the dad is also really great. He's played by an actor named Tracy Letts, who I saw last on Homeland being one of the asshole like administrators. And he always usually plays asshole like government administrators. But here he plays like the greatest dad in the world. And you're like, wow, this is great for this guy. He gets to play completely against type. Oh, and he's great. really terrific yeah. in it. It's just this really wonderful story about a girl who is trying to figure out who she is and whether or not she wants to get out of her little town, as she thinks of Sacramento, and the push and pull of her family and her friends at high school and finding a new friend group. It's, I mean, it's not breaking any new ground in terms of the overall plot, but it's not really about the plot. It's about the characters within it. Saoirse Ronan is terrific in it. Uh, everyone in the movie, this movie is really terrific. We talked about length. It's only an hour and a half. It's really, it's really sharp and taut. It's, it's really, really, really funny. Really sweet, too, in a way you don't expect. Really great character movie, Lady Bird. That's great. Who who was cool. the the first lady that was called Lady Bird? Lady Bird Johnson. Yeah. Lady Bird Johnson. Yeah. I kept th- I keep thinking that it's about that, and it's clearly not. She's not so. the drunk either. That's no, the, Lady Bird yeah. is not about President Johnson's wife. Um, <laughs> well, there's there's problem right been. there. <laughs> Put that in the poster. The founder is the next thing on our list, and uh, this was one that I saw the trailer and oh, they've uh. made a film for me. <laughs> yes, which is kind of the only kind that I have to really go out of my way to see at this well, let me, point. Let me just let me just caveat this before you fully going. So when we first announced that this was going to be on the rundown, people freaked out because originally this movie was going to come out late last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it got ended up getting bumped to January for reasons who knows. But people may hear the founder and think, no, that movie came out last year. It actually really came out January of this year. So continue. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't matter. It got buried. And I don't down. Yep. Anybody saw it? You know, it, it's everything I want. It's a, it's a, Great it's movie. a story of fifties America. Basically, it's a story of Ray Kroc, the guy who is known as the quote unquote founder of McDonald's. Another John Carroll Lynch appearance in this one. Yes, Michael Keaton Ugh. as Ray Kroc. You know, I mean, at this point, Michael Keaton leading a film is enough reason to go. I think. Yes. Oh, totally. I mean, like that's enough. It would I would go to see that, especially a drama. Well, a, sure. a couple of years ago was Birdman. Birdman was pretty esoteric and strange, and it was really good. I, you guys loved it more than I did. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get that, and it's fine. It wasn't my kind of film. This was my kind of film. Uh-huh. Um, and and the other thing that really made it interesting is is a it's the story behind something that is so ubiquitous that is amazing that we don't know it. Do you think the fact that it got buried was because of Big McDonald's? I don't know. I hadn't thought of that, but I, I suppose. I don't eat fast food. I haven't for, eat for years. I never really liked McDonald's to begin with. No. Nope. I can't imagine anyone wanting to eat McDonald's after watching this movie. I mean. Uh, I have. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. You know, the thing is, like, it's a great story. And yes. boy, at the end of this, you it's not that you don't know how to feel. You know how to feel. And it's kind of awful. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, he's wow. a shit in the movie but it is utterly watchable it's compelling as an ass it's totally compelling and to watch from where the person started to where he was at the end you know is a testament to what he was talented at which was just the stick-to-itiveness the elbow grease that really that american dream kind of thing the ambition you know to be and do a certain thing but to reinvent yourself and have a second act and that's the quintessential american thing right is to yeah it is make your comeback and sure take these two guys dave mcdonald and destroy their lives and and right well i mean that's the other thing is that like in the american dream that is the unsaid message and it's important that this movie put that as part of it like really somebody's gonna get screwed on you on the way to success you know to really have that kind of success 
I and I just I love this movie. Loved it. Yeah. I still haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's so it's, I'm it's, so it's, embarrassed by myself. It looks great. I, when I, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, this is this is perfect. I can't wait to see just, it. It's a small movie, and I mean, like, it came out in January, so easy to miss. I think. Yeah, it, it got lost in the churn, the awards churn. It didn't come out in time to make it for the end of the year awards, and by the time it came out, Jan- I mean, no one's gonna remember this movie. It, it, put, it put me in the now. same. It felt like the same movie about the guy who invented windshield wipers. For some reason, it was like Doctor that Man kind of in movie. His dream. Yeah, that guy. I've never Is seen that. that. I feel like no, 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 no. You're them. talking about the one with Greg Kinnear. That's uh, a, that's oh, one. Oh, right, right. Okay. This yeah. is the opposite of that. This is this is not the little <laughs> guy winning against the institution. This is the institution forming and destroying the little guy. Oh wow! So a, guy. Yeah. This oh, cool. is not. This is not that. Also, great Nick Offerman in this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. The brothers were fantastic. Yeah. It's great. Sort of rounding this out is a film that, unfortunately, I don't know how anybody's going to see this movie. So it's kind of a <laughs> sorry, honestly. I mean, that, this is lame. I mean, it's great. Thing is, it's my film. It's my choice. I'm talking about a film that Con- Connor and I saw. We were at this film festival, and we had no idea what we were seeing. It's a movie called Bad Genius. Okay, let's let's just preface this really quickly because I know we're yeah, we're please t- do yeah, taking a lot of time here, but. We went to this film festival, and on the for the first day of programming, we didn't have a lot of time to fill out our yeah. list. You had to, there was a deadline, and so we did it really quickly, and we didn't really look at what we were signing up for, right? Which ended up actually working out really well. But when we walked into this movie, I had no idea what it was even about. I just knew the title of it, and so yeah, that's, that's how this happened. And so this this is a it's a thriller about test taking and basically a cheating ring. In high school, it takes place in Thailand. Well, it's, a Thai, it's a Thai film. It's, it's important. To it's know. a Thai film. It's in Thai, and it's it's. I we haven't seen any way to see it in the U.S. I, I'm hoping that it'll be available on video, but it's a, basically the story of this girl Lynn, who's extremely smart, and her she's played by what I guess she was a model, yeah. and her name is. Chutaman, and then her last name is no joke. I counted is twenty characters long, and I don't know how to say it. So just look it up. Bad genie is starting Chutaman, twenty characters long last name, and she gets caught up with. She doesn't have any friends. She's a sort of the smart nerd, but then she gets caught up with this crew, and I mean this kind of one of those things where I wish you could just see it, but it's it's about this crew that figures out a very elaborate way to cheat on this exam that will help get them into U.S. colleges. It takes school exams and turns it into like a heist movie. Yeah, as thrilling as any great heist movie I've ever seen. This was this was my favorite film that we saw in that festival. Yeah, it was great. We, we talked a lot about with the Big Sick and Get Out and Wonder Woman. You know, different points of view. This is a Thai film about people in Thailand. And it's interesting to see their lives, interesting to see point of view, but the the stylistic way that the film was shot was interesting. The acting was really, really, really terrific. And you just didn't think you would ever see a movie in which a bunch of kids are taking a global standardized test and you'd be sweating watching it. Because you're literally on the edge of your on the edge of your seats. Yeah. But I, I was not expected for the, the quality of filmmaking and in term and even this like the visual effects and the pacing and the editing. There are shots where you're watching somebody literally filling in a, an oval with a number two pencil, super sharp focus with the, the graphite spilling onto the page, and you are absolutely you're you're gripping the side of your seat. It's that tense. And the way it's all broken down by quarters of the school year. It's just an unbelievable, and you're 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 so tense 
for most of the film. It's such a great movie. It was so fun to watch. It's super cool to see Thailand, and it was really interesting to see this notion of this test that you. It's like the SAT times a million. That if you pass, then then you can go to the USA and study in college there. And the kind of the position that these puts these students in. I mean, the stakes get higher and higher and higher. But at the end of the day, they figure out this incredible, elaborate a heist film basically to try to get around this test. And it just it's one of those things where it starts simple and completely goes completely out of control. And it's just a joy to watch, um, even though it does give you an ulcer during it. <laughs> so if you ever like bump into this movie, if it maybe it'll get released online somewhere. It's called Bad Genius. Um, it's so worth your time. It's super funny. The acting is terrific. You get completely in, uh, engulfed in this movie, and you really are reminded that you're happy you're not in high school anymore doing any of this stuff. <laughs> is there anything more, Connor? You saw it. Anything else? That was that. I mean, you were right. It, it, we saw a lot of movies. This is my favorite by far. I'm really bummed I can't show this to people. Hopefully it'll get released in the U.S. Some of the things we saw there that were foreign have been getting deals. It's totally worth seeing. Really great filmmaking. Really impressive filmmaking all around. I mean, it's a full package. This was a great film. So those are the films we're going to talk about. Let's move on to the TV section. And I had a hard time narrowing it down to just five because we each get five things to talk about. Yeah. As we all know, there's way too much TV and there's way too much good TV, which sounds like a weird thing to complain about. But I, I had a hard time picking five things that really encapsulated my TV watching this year. But I'd be hard pressed and I think it'd be wrong to not mention This Is Us, which is the biggest show on network TV. Network TV is still a thing that exists. And the president of NBC says this show gets watched as much once you get to all the platforms, as any episode of ER did in its heyday. So it's truly a phenomenon. It's a juggernaut. And I'm not above saying it makes me cry on a regular basis. I'm just getting caught up in this season. When I saw the billboards and the sort of the bus ads for this, I was like, this is just a Hallmark show. You know, right. it's like, but I was really, really, it's been, it's always in fun to watch. Not necessarily fun. It's very emotional to watch. But what an incredible cast. Yeah. The, and the tone and yeah it's a well, great it's, show it's moved beyond its gimmick which is that it's all these kids who are triplets and then one kid who was adopted and then it flashes back and forth to them as kids and they're i mean sterling k brown who won the emmy for yep. best actor for yes. the show is so good and he's sort and of overshadowing him. his other castmates who are also really good but his stuff his scenes are so good and ron cephas jones who plays his father is so good milo ventimiglia plays jack who is despite his alcoholism great dad i mean it's just it's a classic network show the acting is such at a high level and shout out to justin hartley yeah you know he's great in it it's so cool that he's uh, he you know such a fan of his when he was green arrow and it's so cool to see him not do that kind of thing at all but also be that kind of thing at the same time it's just fantastic i like watching him work it's a really good show. and mandy moore is great in it it's a great cast yeah Josh, you're watching this show, and I'm so bummed because I watched the first episode of this season. It was like, this is so the kind of show that I love, and I'm so bummed I'm not watching it. I'm very glad I watched it. Um, <laughs> I had put off watching this show, A Halt and Catch Fire, for years. I think I tried to watch the pilot. I have a problem yeah. with pilots a lot of times, and I, I just— Pilots aren't always, always that great. Most of the time, they're not. Yeah. You know, basically the way that I, I work is that when I have a lot of work to do, I like to put a TV show on that can just keep running. And when I finish one, I spend a long time looking for another thing that is going to grab my attention, but also not grab my attention because I need to work. You know, I put this on and it's stuck. 
And I was so happy about it. And so, you know, the guys at our Slack chat had to hear me talk about the show from episode one. But I went through the whole thing pretty fast. He binged the whole series this year, and we got the daily Halt Catch Fire update. Oh from Josh wow! Every day, yeah. yeah oh, wow. And, and and then by the you know I had I came on episode two of this season, which was the last season of the show. Oh, so it was. So it's all episode. done now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it just oh, wow. ended. What's great about the show, though, is that well, not great, but interesting about it was that I didn't really love season one. I stopped watching it in the middle of season one, and then I was me too. Forced to come back to season two, and then it became. By the end, I thought it was one of the most underrated, least talked about, great shows of the of the you know the modern TV era. Absolutely true. I would, I would, I really liked season one. It was different than the others, I think, in retrospect. But I liked that tech aspect a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like, sure. I like the. It's a very loose analogy to Wozniak and Jobs, and I think that it got away from that completely at a certain point, basically. But what you have at the end, by, by the time we've gone through the whole thing, is I mean, some of the best character work I have seen on a television show in a very long time. And you've got to see, you talked about this in, in something earlier, you know, like everybody had an arc. And, yeah. and, and like who was being focused on at the beginning of the show and at the middle of the show and at the end of the show. You know, Donna was almost an afterthought in the first season. She was, uh, you know, um, I want to say Scoot because I can't think of his name. But, you know, you think of uh, his wife, you know, that came on and like, oh, there's this other character who's there. And all of a sudden she becomes important. And then it goes from being a show about two people to being a show about three people to being about a show about four people. And all of them are interesting and good in their own way to watch the ascension of Joe as a really interesting sort of broken, I'm going to call him a bad guy character. Mm. He is, until the fourth season, the final season, kind of the villain of the show. I mean, he is. I mean, he's, he, he's he own, redeems he's his himself own at the end, yeah. Yeah, no, and then, like, I don't even know how realistic he is in season four, but I don't care because I fell in love with him. Well, you love 90s, long-haired, oh. sensitive Joe. That's your favorite character oh. of all time. It was, and they had the glasses, and when they cut the hair, I was like, oh, what are you doing? But, like, that was really good. I think, I think was it the second to last or the third to last episode? Something happened. Yes. That wrecked me. Not since Dr. Green. <laughs> it's a really, really great show. So, if you don't know, it's, it's a loose fictionalization of the history of tech, and it, so it starts off in Texas, because there's a lot of, you know, Texas instruments, a lot of technology started in Texas. These guys trying to, trying to basically build their own compact, trying to build their own computer company, and then they get destroyed by Apple when it comes out. And it, it follows to the point where by the end, they're all in Silicon Valley, and, it, and they're dealing with the internet. So it follows the loose sort of arc of technology uh, with these characters who are completely fictionalized and have their own companies. The plots are almost a little too on the nose. Basically, in the one season, they're inventing, you know, search. Yeah. In another season, they're inventing, you know, the internet. <laughs> so, like, those are... Kind of goofy, but they never actually do it. Right, they get beaten by the real people. And well, not, I mean, that's well, they become successful in their lives, and the one person who's probably the smartest engineer out of all of them becomes a VC. Right. So that's funny, you know, like, but but the characters are great. Like at one point, you know, like some of the characters are together, and then they're not, and like it's and and there's a big time jump that happens both between seasons and within seasons. Yes. Yes. A couple of times, they cover a ton of ground. It's just, and it's just it's smart and well done, but more than anything, it's they're they're the best characters who I've spent time with in a long time. Having grown up with floppy disks, and oh, you'll like those you'll, kinds of cables. I mean, I've you, I've watched a couple of episodes. I, I dropped off at the first season. I'm going to go. You, you need, go this is exactly a show that. of all the shows. You need to. Where did you watch it, Josh? What was your platform? I watched it on Netflix. Yeah, until Mike. I got to you know 
AMC. You, than I you of all people need to watch this show. This is like your this is like your wheelhouse. But uh, we didn't even mention Josh, the best character in the show. Oh Jesus, no! Of course not, Boz. Boz. Boz gets some scenes near the end of the show that don't need to be there. <laughs> Shouldn't be there, really, from an editing standpoint, but God, thank God. I mean, he basically, I'm not even kidding you, he gets a The Right Stuff scene <laughs> to end his arc. Music and all. Just because, like, I, I think it was clear to them, like, anybody watching, well, this guy's the hero. We don't, we can't really sell that from a narrative standpoint, but we need to make sure that everyone knows. Uh, and then he talks about Chili at one point. It's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Do you yeah. guys think that it, I mean, I, I, do you think the name had something to do with people not oh, watching totally. it? Oh, yes. 100%. Plus, it came on after Mad Men ended. It was supposed to be like the, the replacement for Mad Men. It was right. another like workplace period piece. This time, it was the '80s and technology. It just the name was terrible. It's you know, but yep. and it just it wasn't Mad Men, and that was really what. I mean, it went four seasons. It went way longer than I thought it was going to go. That being said, Lee Pace, he's not not in the um, John Hamm world. I wow. don't think. Well, he, he's right. he's right there. I, at the end of this, I was like. I don't know why Lee Pace isn't a huge, huge, huge star. Genuinely, like if you if you search "Halt and Catch Fire" gifts, all yes. you're going to find ninety percent of them are Joe, and none of them are the, are the cute punk girl. <laughs> like that, and that's weird. Also, yeah. the soundtrack, all the way through. Nice. Every single season, every episode is stellar. It's so good. Oh boy, four seasons, huh? But it goes by fast. Yeah, I really want to see 13 it. episodes. Okay. Mike, so this year started for two Star Trek fans like us. We were told, hey, new Star Trek show coming out. Great. We were all excited to watch it, and we're going to talk about it in a, in a bit. And then there was this other thing that was going to happen. Seth MacFarlane's what looked like and what was promoted as his parody of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, this is, to be honest with you, I thought that when they were talking about doing a Galaxy Quest TV series, that they rejiggered it after Alan Rickman died to make the Orville. And I was completely wrong obviously, but I had sort of gone into it thinking that this is going to be a Galaxy Quest send-up. Just for the record, I think Galaxy Quest is a perfect movie and there should be no TV series. <laughs> and so I was a little bit worried that it was going to be sort of this campy, very Seth MacFarlane-y, family guy, American dad, all of this kind of quippy humor, lots of asides, non sequiturs, all that kind of stuff in this show, the sci-fi show called The Oroville. Now, to be clear, there is a lot of that stuff in the pilot and the second episode. But what has rapidly become uh, obvious is that Seth MacFarlane, along with Brandon Braga, who, of course, is a uh, Next Generation producer, and folks like John Favreau and Jonathan Frakes, Robert Duncan McNeil, they went out and went to make a modern-day Star Trek The Next Generation. And th this is clearly a passion project for Seth MacFarlane, it's almost like everything he's done has led up to him going to Fox saying, I want to make a sci-fi show. It's going to be a little like, little bit like Star Trek. Just trust me. It's going to be good. Just give me a couple buckets of money. And this is the result of it. And the true result, beyond just the show, is actually a really good sci-fi show. It's so good. It it's, is so good. It has so no good. right to be as good as it is. And the thing is, by the, the third yep. episode, as you mentioned, <laughs> it becomes a drama. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. occasional jokes, but it's a fucking drama. And it's basically, we talked about this, we did a podcast about the Orville of Star Trek Discovery, but he is redoing The Next Generation right down to the music cues. Oh, it, it, 
fades in like a Next Generation episode. It pulls out like one. It's like I don't know where the lawyers are. I, I, I just they're asleep. They, they're camped outside somewhere. <laughs> they fall. They're overslept. But the thing is, it's both an homage, but they're not redoing Star Trek. They're actually tackling. If Star Trek were around now, yes, the Next Generation crew were around, they'd be tackling the same issues. I would go so far as to say, as two of the episodes, the the third episode yeah. in which we dealt with the forced gender reassignment surgery, and then right. the Black Mirror episode. I would say Oof. we're two of the best shows I watched this year on all of TV. There's only a couple of shows like this, but it's one of the, I actually look forward to watching it. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go <laughs> see it. or well, it's, gonna, it's in my queue. It's like, when is the next episode on? And I, I never get to say that. It's got a great cast. I mean, he again, he's living this fantasy. <laughs> only, only, only a person like Seth could write a, a show where, you know, his ex-girlfriend is Adrian Palicki and he wants nothing to do with her. I mean, it's like, and... Uh, the different actors and actresses that come on this show are like they're marquee people and it's got a great cast. People clearly love working on it. It's an incredibly good looking show. My friend actually is writing a book on the show. It'll be out in December, but he visited the set and it's an incredibly elaborate, it contains set two stories tall and it's funny. It's one of those weird shows where the stories are good. The production quality is really, really good. And there's actually some some of the jokes really land, and they're actually legitimately funny. I don't think there's any other show like it on TV that's able to balance actual legitimate science fiction storytelling, fun action sequences, and some some pretty good jokes. <laughs> and and Rob Lowe plays a blue alien who uh, you know once a year has everybody get really in love with him. And it, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> He's so good in it too. Boy, Rob Lowe is so good in you it. Guys are- Almost making me interested. I mean, not, it's though. So no, no, you, you would not like the show. <laughs> yeah. For people who like this kind of show. People like laughing and like Star Trek. <laughs> what's, gonna... it, what's interesting is that I had thought that we were pretty much as a culture at the point of just putting Seth MacFarlane on like a rocket that was shot into the sun. And it feels like he's got a little bit of a reprieve. No, <laughs> I'm not a big Seth MacFarlane guy. I don't really like Family Guy. I don't really like his other stuff. But this is legit. I almost hate to say it, but it's legit. This show is it's really fair enough. But what's one of the, lastly one of the cool things about it is that you're watching the show find its voice. Yeah, it's like the first couple episodes you're like ah, I don't know, and then they hit you with the third one, and then it sort of it just sort of writes itself like a ship, and they just go for it. It's one of those shows where I get worried that it's one of those shows where I get worried they're going to cancel it. It has been renewed, which I'm thrilled to report. Shorter seasons, of course, but if you've been curious about it, my recommendation is that you don't actually need to watch all of them you can sort of hop on board but if you just started with episode three i think you could just go for it but it's it's super fun to watch and it's i for me the biggest surprise of the year for tv hbo used to be the place to go for all your prestige dramas now there's like 15 places to go for those and most of them are over- overshadowing what hbo is doing other than game of thrones but i thought big little lies was one of the best things that happened this year it was the seven issue miniseries adaptation of a issue did I say issue? Yes, you did. I do. So I, I take issue, I which take is issue funny because that. talking about the comics, I say episode. I don't know what's going yep. on. <laughs> Seven episode miniseries adaptation of a book that was a really interesting and really great. It was a, it was a mystery, murder mystery, but it was almost secondary to these really great performances from Reese, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Shailene Woodley, Alexander Skarsgård, Adam Scott, Zoe Kravitz. A great cast. Laura Dern. 
great houses, wonderful houses. It's like um, it's the typical thing, place. like the life inside of the perfect bubble. You know, the people these great jobs, great houses, not so perfect and not so great, and everyone's got problems. I watched it as sort of curiosity the first episode, and I was instantly hooked by it. And I, I, every week, I was excited to get the next chapter. For sure. Uh, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. It, no. it, you, it must be said that Laura Dern is is absolutely spectacular in this. To see her come back like that, I mean, I, I don't know if she's coming back or not, but I, I, I just feel like she's gone. Her. She does does stuff that people don't see, but it's always good. Also, <laughs> she doesn't age, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it, just to see a movie, I mean, a show, a series of shows, with such a strong female cast, yeah. And their chemistry. The thing is, it's what was frustrating is that when it ended, you, I mean, you're like, oh my god, this is it because you get these characters are so good. You want to just watch them have brunch, you right. know? It just they're, they're, the way and their problems are really, really intense. And is it Skarsgård? The yeah. he, you know, he he might never act again. I mean, he was so good. <laughs> as, I mean, he, but it's like one of those roles where you're like, yeah, but. Like I don't want to be that guy, and because right. he, he's a vicious, vicious person, and, and abuses this is a person who's previously known as a vampire, who everyone was like, I kind of do want to be like that guy. Yeah, really hard to watch those scenes with him really and Nicole yes. Kidman. Uh, really intense, and it was really difficult to watch. Yes, and, and apparently quite difficult to film because he, the director, filmed filmed everything with multiple cameras and just kept the cameras rolling. So it wasn't like set up, set up, you know, and, you know, and then do close up, close up. They just had a bunch of cameras going. And so it was much like each sequence is more like a play. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing scenes like that, where, you know, it's in intense emotional and physical scenes like that, it's full. It's fully realized. And I, I, I hear that, you know, I could only imagine the actors and the actresses kind of discussing these topics. I thought it was a, just a, a real surprise. I thought this was going to be some sort of chick lit mm-hmm. series that I would watch with Whitney while I'm doing other things on my computer. And it was so not that. And I hope anybody who is sort of skeptical about this series really gives it another chance because I thought it was terrific. Yeah. My wife watched it all, and she was like, "You need to watch." It. And I was like, "I don't want to watch." It. She goes, "You just watch it," and she was right. You know, like within a, within a half an episode, and like even if you went in just for the the mystery part of it, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the whole time you're like, "What, what, what, what's what's happening here? Why is you know?" So that part's really good too. Yeah, really great, really great miniseries, and the miniseries is slowly making a comeback, which is nice. Yeah, um, I want to talk about the Vietnam War. Wow, <laughs> all of it. Yeah, yeah so this is normally a long show, but I didn't want to really settle in. Actually, I won't, I won't go on at too much length about it other than to say, talking about Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's, uh, the, 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 the Civil War, the Vietnam War, it's one of their prestige documentary. He calls it a film, but it's 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 a 11 or 10, however long it is. It's, no, 18 hours? It's, it's really long. It's what I'm getting at. It's this document explaining and exploring the Vietnam War, which is more complicated than, you know, anything I've ever, it's done more justice in helping me understand it than anything ever has from the history before it, you know, what happens afterwards. It feels like the best thing that Ken Burns has ever done. And at the same time, also the most important and I feel like I, I feel like I feel like we should be required to watch it. Americans should be required to watch it. I agree. Um, I, I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I, I couldn't believe just the first episode where they sort of give the history and set everything up. I was flabbergasted, really, just how little I know about this incredibly yeah. important period of time, you know, and how little I know about Vietnamese history. And we were there for however long. 
and we I had no context of what who these people were, and I thought it set everything up, and it was just so maddening watching and knowing what comes. Yeah, I I, I was totally blown away, and to watch it, like you know, if you watch the Civil War. Civil War's great, shot on film and everything, but it was done in four by three in standard def, you know, until they they redid it. This is all a lot of a lot of film elements brought in. You know, we watch it in high def. We watch it. You know, they they've been doing this for a decade. So, uh, you know, some of the people aren't around anymore. So a lot of the things that they tell you about, you know, how how, how Nixon did what he did. You know, there's some real bombshells in them. <laughs> I didn't even mean that. That's a horrible. It wasn't supposed to be a horrible pun. It's just like it's it's required watching, and it's super important to look at how our world is now, and and uh, and also compelling the entire way through. Uh, you know, I'm a history buff, so it's it's not as hard for me to get into it. But you know, everybody should watch it. And it's so close to us. I mean, you know, my uncle was there. My dad didn't go; he couldn't go. Some medical deferment thing, but a lot of his classmates yeah. went. Right. Just kind of how we talk. Up. It's we're still figuring out the vocabulary. I think how we talk about this thing. We ignored um, and, it. Yeah, yeah. Ignored it. I mean, other than all of our parents were affected by it. Yeah. Could you, you imagine know, a draft now? Could you imagine? No. No. It, it, it's just, it's amazing. It, I'm so glad this is on the list because it really is, it's such a, it's one of those things where it's a shame that that it, it's not getting more attention. But, it, you know, it, I'm, I think as it's really, really. As far as this really... thing kind of goes, though, it's getting. Yeah, you're right. But, it's, but right. it's a, yeah, it's right. more, more people should be watching it. And I really, uh, you know, I, there's a big culture war going on. But, yeah, I, I think it is what it is. I think they find truth very important. And I, I think it's it's an important story. And they, they talk to Vietnamese. They talk to they yeah. talk to Americans. They talk to people who are for it. They talk to people who are against it. You will question. You know, Peter Coyote, who narrates it, was is a notoriously anti-war person. And then, you know, it, it, I, you know, he began to question assumptions that he'd had his whole life. And it's just it's super important and so well done. Keeping on the the war theme, I guess, is my selection. And this is a, this is kind of a TV series, but it was again on Netflix. The show sponsored by Netflix. Um, it is not. Documentary. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wasn't uh, telling you. It's a documentary series called Five Came Back, and it's based on the book of the same name by Mark Harris, who wrote an incredible book about, uh, nine, I think it was 1968, uh, picture, uh, a book on movies. And it's about these filmmakers in World War II that were basically drafted by the military to join the service and make what really were propaganda films and these kinds of narratives that help shape the public's view of the war. And I really, to be honest with you, I had no idea about any of this. Well, we're going to talk about the story itself with the book section. The move, the, This documentary, I thought, was really well made. For me, it was just looking. So it's about these five filmmakers, William Wyler, Frank Capra, George Stevens, John Ford, and John Huston, who are asked to tell stories about different aspects of the military over the war. And what's amazing is that you saw filmmakers like Paul Greengrass and Francis Ford Coppola, Guillermo del Toro, even Spielberg, they're talking about these filmmakers and the kinds of techniques that they were they had to use, the kinds of well, tricks that they did to set up some shots, but they really the toll that it took on these filmmakers and how the films that these amazing directors made before the war and after the war, the difference uh, the kinds of stories that they they chose to tell and the impact of seeing what they saw in these uh, just hanging out with these these people that were living in the war the, just watching firsthand these battles 
And to me, the benefit of this miniseries, as opposed to the book, is that you didn't have to run to YouTube every five minutes to look something up, because a lot of the stuff is on YouTube. A lot of the war films I made were on YouTube. You're getting to see them in the documentary, getting to see clips from the films, getting to see clips from the battlefield and some of the footage that wasn't yeah. used, really enhanced, I thought, the, the story of these filmmakers. Exactly. Seeing just their their B-roll or the, just their, their outtakes and watching them in this incredibly terrible environment trying to figure out how to make these stories... And also, frankly, how these stories, these films didn't necessarily do that well. You know, they weren't popular and how frustrating that was. And just sort of this, these machinations to try to sort of put out these messages about how the war was going. I thought even that aspect of the relationship between media, propaganda, government and the populace and just how messy and complicated it is. But one of the cool things about it, it made me really reconsider these filmmakers in a different light and maybe watch films that I would normally not have seen. It's just a really, really interesting. It's only three episodes, yep. uh, each about over a little bit over an hour long. Meryl Streep directs it. No, she narrated I, I, I mean, uh, narrate it. Narrate it. It's just a really cool documentary. Again, not in like the, the Vietnam War stuff. It's just about stuff I didn't really know about. And it just sort of puts a different picture on it. And it really is also a testament to filmmaking and then how, important it can be and often sometimes how filmmaking can fail too so i i thought it was really really cool to watch everybody should watch the best years of their lives that was that's that's the biggest takeaway from the biggest takeaway riverdale taking a gigantic tone shift (laughs) season two riverdale is really what i want to talk about season one was fun it was not campy but it was very you know soap opera-y and it was this you know modern take on the archie characters and the different pairings and the love triangles season two they dive deep into the pulp well so in season two they take the black hood character josh do you remember you talked about a couple of his comics on the show yep. he was the character who wore the ski mask and it's an archie character archie owns the character so they use him as this serial killer who's terrorizing riverdale and he's been doing it throughout the entire season. He's still terrorizing it, as even as we record this. And they dive deep into that aspect of it. Archie's dad gets shot. One of the main characters gets murdered. Archie forms a vigilante gang. It's like they go and they're just like, fuck it. We're turning this dial to 11. And it's really working. I mean, if you like that kind of cool. kind of thing, it's every week I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be crazy. And I'm going to love it. When they said they were going to do an Archie TV show, I never expected they were going to go this direction with it. And I, and I really am happy about it because it's super fun. If there was ever a movie that more, or not movie, TV show, series, that sort of was perfectly paired with the current news to make me feel completely terrified and horrible, that would be The Handmaid's Tale from the good people at Hulu. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hulu, this, for all your TV ser- news. <laughs> yeah, this I series, mean, dude. Oh, my God. It should feel like this would never happen, but it doesn't. Uh, and that is the scariest thing about it. It's uh, yeah. it's this near future dystopian tale of of uh, a theocracy. Yeah, the right wing Christian is it is it Christian? Yeah, or is it just some right wing religious yeah. extremists uh, take over and society's you know gender is and class are sort of completely reorganized and uh, there's a lot of ladies who are there for breeding because there's I don't know some uh, that's, well, that's, that's an environmental. Well, that's an aspect of it, too, is the environment yeah. yep. helps this happen. Yeah. What's really interesting about it, I think the thing that really sold it, uh, other than just great production and acting and all that stuff, you know, sure. it's, a, it's a really suspenseful and interesting show with good characters and everything. But all of the characters uh, had lived in the time prior to that. So there's flashbacks to our world. 
basically. Those yeah. are my, almost my favorite parts was seeing how it happened. For sure. You get that helpless sense of watching how it slowly starts to unfold and then it gets to the point where no one can stop it. And that's the really terrifying thing. To think yeah, there, there's a bit where I think it's probably scared me the most. There's a bit where sh- the two girls go into Starbucks, you yeah. know, and yes. cars yes. don't work. Yes. And the guy behind the, the desk, you know, has no compunction ab- about berating them. And, you know, he sees which way the wind is blowing. And that and that's that's scarier than anything can get me. I, I was terrified when suddenly, you know, they're at their job and they're all getting laid off and their bank accounts aren't working and you realize that everything is connected financially and all that stuff. It's almost like it's like lava coming in when you're a kid, right? You're just getting slowly surrounded by this terrible. Connor has a funny story about watching the show and then having to leave the house. Yeah, we uh, we you know all the talk about it. We finally decided to watch it and we made it. After the second episode, we, we stopped it and said, you want to go see Wonder Woman again? And we said, we got up and we, we, we got up and went to the theater and just bought a ticket for the next show. We needed to cleanse the, the taste. Yeah. I can't think of a better made show from a technical standpoint. It looks really huh? gorgeous. It's, it's shot it, it, beautifully. It's doing a lot with a little, you can tell, but it doesn't show. But it's just, oh, it's hard to watch. Ooh. It, it, really it is. It was. It, it made me feel... It, well, it's a lot like just opening the paper or whatever, opening your Twitter feed, I guess, okay. where you're feeling embarrassed and angry and sickened by, you know, sort of this, it's an exaggerated masculinity in aspects of this too, right? It's it's very in keeping with all of this and watching this sort of aspect of humanity go completely crazy and off the rails again. And just looking at the news and going, wow, we're only like three or four terrible decisions from this kind of shit happening. You know, and I, and I think it, it, it was very upsetting to watch. I think the only reason that you can watch it is because you actually go, well, I know that this isn't currently real. <laughs> and if you, can, you, can, you can watch it and go, at least this isn't real. At I can go not on. like this. Right, right. And then I'm not yeah. even kidding. Like, no, I agree. I agree completely. The other thing about the show was it taught a whole country full of men that the of joke does not land. Oh, the uh, I made I made uh, of Connor jokes and those did not land. And I know other people who've made similar jokes that did not land. Don't those uh, jokes don't land. Oh. You have not been married long enough, my friend. <laughs> you would I would never there's no way. No way. No way that, that would happen. I mean, now I want to do it in my head, and I don't even think it's funny in my head. I wouldn't uh, have even when you said it, I was like, what are you talking about? Why would you do that? That's horrible. They're bad. <laughs> and some really good performances. Joseph Fine. From Shakespeare to this, and his wife, uh, Yvonne Stravinsky. She's amazing in it, and watching watching that very complex relationship sort of fall apart and come together and fall apart again was really, really... I, I never read the book. I tried listening to the book, uh, but I, it, it just didn't take... But they really expanded upon it. Well, what's interesting is basically the, the book is the first season. It, it ends in a very similar place that the book ends, so now that we're in That's, uncharted yeah. territory going forward. Yeah. Star Trek Discovery is all about uncharted territory. <laughs> Uh, okay, so here here's the situation. Just because it's on the list doesn't necessarily mean it's like, hey, this is one of the greatest things this year. That was what we said at the top of the show, Mike, that this is our favorite stuff from the year. So clearly... It is. Well, it's my favorite thing to debate then. Okay. Okay. You, <laughs> okay. We, you know, we're on record. You know, you can listen to the episode Connor talked, uh, talked about earlier when we talked about the premiere episodes of the pilots of Orville and Star Trek Discovery. And this is an interesting show for me. I, you know, a lot of us, like many of you out there, and uh, grew up with Star Trek. And... I really was not looking forward to the show because every time these things come out, I'm disappointed in a new way and I'm tired of it. And this is such a weird conversation because 
as we're we're recording this, we're midway through the first season. And Star Trek, let's just take a step back, is the new series that had quite the birthing, you know, inspired by Gene Roddenberry's story. But Brian Fuller took it was Alex Kurtzman. And then Brian Fuller, is that right? A lot of different... Brian producers. Fuller developed it, and he, he started it, and then he, he left the show, as he does many shows he creates. And then you have Akiva Goldsman. There's so many producers on this. It's actually kind of, kind of hilarious. This is now this new Star Trek show that you can't watch on Netflix, and you can't watch on Hulu, and you certainly are as hell not watching it on TV. The price of admission is watching this on CBS All Access. And so... It's an interesting show because, as we said on our podcast, for me, Star Trek is is the people's show. Everybody should be able to watch Star Trek. So I, I am very, I'm frustrated by the format of it. But this is a series that takes place supposedly in the Star Trek universe ten years before <laughs> the original series. And uh, I'm not going to get into. There's so many little arguments in my head that have already spurred forth, but I'm gonna, just going to go right through. And we're supposed to believe in the story that happened 10 years before the Enterprise about just this new relationship that we're having with the Klingons. It's sort of the Klingons are coming out and the Federation has is still kind of in its infancy a little bit. It takes place a little bit after Enterprise. And it's a challenging show. It's not a perfect show. But it's a, it's a science fiction show that's an important part of culture. And I've been watching it with uh, with a skeptical eye and really enjoying aspects of it. Like it's a beautiful show. And as soon as as soon as you say that, that's like a that's such a backhanded compliment these days. But it's it, but it's 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 still it's frustrating that the best Star Trek show for me is still the Orville, and it's not a Star Trek show. But I like being part of the argument slash conversation about what Star Trek really is all about. And I'm very curious to see where this this show goes. So I'm going to interrupt my monologue and say, Connor, please help me talk about this show. What is your feeling now at the at the midpoint break versus how we felt after the pilot? Well, I mean, the problem is, I, I think we've been hoodwinked. I think the first this first entire first part of the season has been a complete red herring, and I don't believe a single aspect of it. I don't actually believe that what we've seen is actually in the universe we thought it was in. And so I don't even know if what we watched mattered, to be honest with you. How do you feel about them having a holodeck 10 years before the Enterprise? Look, and that's the reason why it gets me so cranky. <laughs> because, and, and let's talk about their, the way that, no, I mean, no, none no. of it makes sense. And nothing's in canon. So the, the, the thing is, it, the entire show is not what it's supposed to be. Not like I know, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And that's the problem with the show, okay? But we still watch it because it's Star Trek. I mean, I'm really losing it. I feel very upset right now. But right. it's, 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 but it's, it's got great, it's got a great cast. There have been some really interesting concepts. But for me, is like uh, taking it just as a Star Trek show, I feel like, is, is this our Star Trek? And like, what does that mean? Like, is Star Trek no longer for kids growing up a show about exploration and about humanity and it's about, about war, Mike? It's about science? war and darkness. That's, that's, that's the world we live in. You know, the, the poster for it is, you know, it's live long and prosper, you know, and the ship coming from that. And the notion of the ship's name is discovery. And the problem is the show is not about discovery. The show is about frankly it's about pissing off old school star trek fans <laughs> and about war but i gotta tell you i'm really really interested where this is going i feel like they've got the right pieces in place 
And there have been some pretty compelling, I think, fairly co- some compelling episodes. And it's kept me coming back. My advice to anybody that is aggressively skeptical about this show is that the first part of the season is all done. So you could technically sign up for CBS All Access and get that free trial for a week. And you could watch the whole thing. And you can see what you're missing or not missing, depending on your point of view. But I I think, you know, every generation gets a Star Trek. And I think it's really, really frustrating that so many people can't be part of this conversation. I watch the show. I'm a Star Trek fan. I'm really curious to see where this goes. But I've been disappointed and sort of chastened because it seems much darker than I feel Star Trek should be. But we'll see what happens. I love debating Star Trek. And so that's why it's on the list, because people feel passionately about it. So it's kind of fun to talk about. But it does frankly, drive me crazy, this show. So maybe just watch Oroville. I don't know. Drink some beer for a second. I'll talk about The Good Place. (laughs) Ah, The Good Place. Another network show, NBC, just like This Is Us. What was great about the show was it was a really entertaining show about these characters who end up in heaven after they die, and they're all just sort of disparate, and they're supposed to be the best people on earth, but Kristen Bell's there by accident. She's kind of awful. And what happened was at the end of season one, they completely turned everything on its head and they upended the concept. And I'm not going to say how they did it, but it completely changed the show. And what this has become has been a really entertaining reversal. And also, it also reinforces the idea that Ted Danson is one of the all-time great sitcom actors. He is probably a goddamn American treasure. We should probably investigate that in a future patron hangout. Can, this, is, this is not the time for that sure. conversation. This is not the time for that conversation. But he is so good at being on TV and being funny while being on TV. <laughs> His character has had the most to do this season as his character changed a lot with the reversal. It's a really interesting and fun and innovative show from the people who brought you Parks and Recreation. Oh, it's a terrific show. This is one of the shows where Whitney really liked it. And I would always, I don't know, I didn't want to watch it, but I somehow watched every single episode. And it's one of the most creative shows on TV. It's also one of those shows that if you just watched it right now and had no idea what was going on, it's unwatchable. Yeah, (laughs) you have to watch it. I think I found that when I stopped watching it. I think it's super cool in that way because it really rewards longtime viewers. And maybe it's maybe because they want people to be able to stream it. I don't know. But just like Christopher Nolan, they don't make it easy. And there's some really good twists on the storytelling. And it's just a really great half hour of TV. I think it's I think it's a fantastic show. It's so well written. It drives yep. me nuts. You know, it's always well written. A David Simon show. Yeah, it's exactly that was it. That's it. That was a bullshit segue, but I did it anyway. I want to talk about the Deuce 70s New York City porn and hookers through the lens of David Simon. Life on 42nd Street in 70s New York City, which will be an eye opener for most people who only know New York City post the 90s. Yeah. It's a re- it's a really good show. I can't and wait to see it. It's not wait. easy. I spend a lot of time wondering, like, why are they doing it like this? What are they trying to get at? But David Simon, very wisely, has a lot of female creators on the show because it deals with a lot of sex. And and I've heard interviews where he's talked about that they had a, they made a real effort to try to not present it in a in a sexy way. If that makes it's about sense. the rise of the porn industry so there's a lot of yeah. porn shoots and it's but it's not sexy porn obviously it's it's you feel bad watching it but also there's prostitution yeah. and, and there's also this this it's it's an investigation it's just it's just like a damage diamond show you sort of see it go all these different places there's you know how how 
the one bartender gets involved with the mob who gets involved because the mob, the, the mafia was a really big part of the early porn industry up until I think very recently, basically, or maybe still. But at least at that point, it certainly was. I'm sorry, the what? I'm sorry. There's no such thing as the mafia. To me, if you're a Wire fan, it's almost worth it wow. just to uh, see the guys from the Wire as they're getting, you know, oh, it's Method Man with the with the you know the processed hair pimp. <laughs> and, well, to me, slip, to me, it's, a, it's it's very much like Treme in its format. In that, yeah. it's just a long yeah. story about a bunch of characters whose lives it's intersect. Compact, though. It is, but it's much more to me the format of Treme than the format of The Wire, which was more, sure. which was more focused. This is like a sprawling novel about society, yeah. and that's what I think Treme's format was. I loved the Deuce. I really, I loved it. it. And then also, I have to give a shout out to to James Franco, our best worst actor. He's really good at it. <laughs> I, I, is he? Yes. Like I, he plays twin brothers, and they're distinctive. No, they are. But like, like honest. I, he, I like on the surface. If I just took things on its own, I'm like, I don't think he's good. But then within the piece, I'm like, it's good. And I can't tell. And I, I like that. Like you have, so you basically have to decide you like him. I'm not. There's something off, but it works. I'm pro Franco. That's he's fine. Great. That's fine. And I don't know any of the actors' name other than what they were called in the wire. So I'm like Sabatka's there. He's good. Ralph Macchio in a strange sort of yeah. Every oh, wow. once in a while, cop role. It's great. It's a really great show. And Maggie Gyllenhaal really doing some really interesting work with a character I've never seen before. And I have a lot of fun going, I was alive during this. <laughs> I did a Chekhov Vaudeville Festival on the Show World stage, which is this old strip club theater on 42nd Street right up there. Uh, and it was uh, a little bit of a little taste of the deuce, which sounds terribly, terrible tasting <laughs> right now, actually. Uh, think about it. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. It looks fantastic. Everybody's making TV shows now. So this is a show that I really enjoyed called Genius, which is sort of a bio series of Albert Einstein that Nat Joe channel did. This season is Einstein. Oh. Next season is going to be a different person. And the season, yeah, it's, it's going to be it, – well, next season is going to be Picasso. Yeah. Which is going to be awesome. I think this show – it's like everybody's talking – You know, obviously the, the, the big deal is you have Jeffrey Rush who you know plays Albert Einstein. But – for most of the show, it's this actor named Johnny Flynn who plays the younger Albert Einstein. And it's a really great series. The first episode was directed by Ron Howard um, and Brian Green. I mean, not Brian Green. Uh, Brian, not Brian Green. Brian, <laughs> Brian Austin well, Green. Brian, Brian Grazer. Brian Grazer. <laughs> Brian Grazer uh, is one of the producers, along with Ron Howard, on this series. It's a, just a really cool, like, part of history that I don't know that well. If you think about it, it's kind of amazing. Just a silhouette of Albert Einstein it's instantly recognizable, right? And he mm. was this this theoretical physicist whose work is still being realized and confirmed to this very day. What he was able to think of and science is still catching up. Uh, gravitational waves. We just discovered them a year ago. And he was the first one to postulate that these things existed and even figured out how they might look. And so this is really the story of him, you know, as a young guy married with a couple of kids who was making money as a clerk, just doing paperwork and on the side struggling with these notions of reality. He would say, I want to know why the sun hits the earth in this way. It's a great insight into how a mind like that looks at reality and goes, well, you accept this as reality, but I want to know why. I want to know what's behind this. And... There are these great sequences where 
they use special effects to sort of get inside and describe very classy. It's not overdone about how his brain might be looking at the world that would inspire him to try to solve this problem using mathematics. And you get this wonderful piece of history as these kinds of brains as almost celebrities where they would work out these incredible equations on several blackboards for an audience of a couple of hundred, and then there would be applause and cheering afterwards as he would explain his idea and then prove it using chalk and a blackboard. And like, it's super cool. I don't. You can get it on iTunes. It's on or National whatever. Geographic, right? That's that's who made it. That's who made it. And I, I think it's it was kind of even surprising to them. I can't imagine they thought it was going to be this good, but it, well, it's got a great When you have Ron TV Howard habit. and Brian Grazer, you, you have to expect something. They put some money into it, but I, I was just, I thought, yeah, I didn't know what I was expecting, but I certainly didn't expect to get a really well acted. I mean, Emily Watson's in it. I mean, there's some, uh, Samantha Coley, who plays Einstein's first wife, is fantastic. You know, she, Maleva Marek, she herself was this incredible uh, mathematician. And you really feel the excitement of being alive in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as everybody's questioning everything. And they don't have Google or a phone or anything to look up the answer answer they're looking at what's outside and they're trying to figure it out because no one else has done it and so this idea that's of of real discovery is really captured in this series so i highly recommend it super fun it's also like one of those dvds sets you could get for your parents and they'd be like oh cool you know it's like it's fun to watch but it also makes you feel smart too which i think your parents (laughs) yeah for sure my mom keeps talking about how the ranch on netflix was great so to return to that film festival that Mike and I went to, oh yeah, uh, they also were showing TV shows. And again, one of the things we signed up for, not knowing what it was at all, uh, ended up being a, a Canadian TV show called Letterkenny. Yeah, it was on Crave TV. You can you can watch it through that. We only knew it was from Canada, and if you like Strange Brew, you'd probably like that. And we ended up watching six episodes, I think, <sighs> yeah, at the six. festival. And then when I, we came back to LA, we used our connections to get the entire three season run. It's really hard to describe comedy well, other than to say it was very funny. It's a show called Letterkenny about a small town called Letterkenny in Canada. The tagline is Letterkenny is a town of hicks, skids, hockey players, and Christians. These are their problems. And it's this really smartly written, incredibly well acted, absurdist comedy about this small town and all the different factions that are constantly running into each other. There's also the native criminal organization that comes in later on. <laughs> It's a show where they rely heavily on repetition, repetition of jokes, repetition of situations and setups. But the way it's done, the way that it's acted, it's fully committed to the lead character, Wayne, played by Jared Kiso, is the town badass farmer. And he just completely commits to this character. Again, hard to describe other than it's incredibly funny and incredibly entertaining. We were dying laughing watching it. Literally, uh, people were falling out of their chairs laughing that hard. First of all, none of us had known about it. And it's also this sort of insight into, you know, what maybe some kind of stereotype that Canadians might have about certain other Canadians, I guess. But it's country folk, simple country folk. And these guys run a fruit stand and they have a farm and it's kind of the them living their lives. But the four actors who sort of make up the main company of active cast their interplay is really really good it's hard to describe like you're saying it's kind of like the league in a way where it's it's a, it's a group of actors who really work really well together but the comedy is super sharp very very smart 
And it's also very classical in a way, like what you said, Connor, with the repetition from season to season. There's like these sort of echoes of other jokes. And it's just, it's all very, very methodically done, but um, it's effortless in the jokes and the laughter that you you have from it. It's rapid fire. Yeah. They talk a lot. They talk quickly. Yeah. Jokes come at you very quickly. If you blink, you miss them. I love this show. I look for, apparently they're making more of it. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. It's really terrific. Some of the most taut dialogue that you'll, you'll ever see. A comedy, when done well, certain types of comedy that are done very, very sharp linguistically, it's yeah. a masterclass in that kind of comedy writing. If you like comedy, it's well worth your time because no one's doing anything at all like this in the U.S. That's true. So another thing that I can't think of anything like is Master of None from Netflix. Aziz Ansari's, I want to say creator-owned, but that's a comic book term. <laughs> I don't even want to say sitcom. The reason I'm talking about it is that the second season came out this year. And there's just, there's I, I don't know what it is. There's nothing like it. It's not a sitcom full of gags and it's really interesting. This, this, he spends half of this season in Italy where his character decided to go to learn how to make pasta mm-hmm. or cheese or something like that. It doesn't matter. And so it's got this weird sort of pseudo foreign film thing going on for half of it. And it's, it's again, it's the thing we've talked about. His voice is different. And I, I don't particularly like Aziz Ansari. Hmm. He's funny, he's talented, but I think he's coming from a place that is hard for me to relate to at sometimes. And I don't mean the place of an Indian American. I mean the place of just the way that he is young single person or whatever. Like I, I don't love his comedy or anything, but the show is super interesting. You know, much in the same way that we talked about the big sick being interesting. Kamala's Pakistani, Aziz is Indian, it's different. He just has a different point of view and he's talking about a lot of things. There's some really heady art school type of episodes that are going on in this ostensibly you know it has to do with girls and a breakup and dating that was sort of the first season and this one really gets out there and lets them try a bunch of things there's one really experimental episode i'm actually trying to remember the details of it but i remember looking up like 15 minutes and i'm like what not wait am i still watching the same thing what happened there's a whole thing with deaf people you know it's very experimental in the format and in form as well. And this is one of those things that I told my wife to watch. She was looking for something to watch. And I go, you should try this. And she's like, I, I don't like him. And I was like, <laughs> you should try it. And, you know, plowed it through the two seasons in a row. It's not like the funniest thing on earth. It's not the most thought provoking thing, but it is unique and it is really interesting. And it's, it's trying really hard. And I don't mean trying really hard. And that's sad. Like, okay, you stop. You're trying really hard. I mean, like it's, it's interesting. I haven't watched the second season, but there yeah. was a first season episode where it, with the the one with the parents, and mm-hmm. it sort of showed the point of view of the fathers and how they it, it just involved them being first generation and and talked yeah. about their parents, and I thought that was one of the greatest episodes of TV I've, I'd seen that year. Yeah. Like, I thought that episode was incredible. So I'm hoping I'm glad to hear so, that you like the second season. I liked it a lot, and it, the thing is, it's easy to talk about a show like this and say that's what it is. That's what it's yeah. about. That's but that's a part of it. A lot, you know, a lot of it is things that you can completely relate to. Some of the things you won't, but you'll understand. Some of them are completely out there. It's a lot of things. It's a little bit formless in that way that he had a freedom to do. And I think it was successful. And I like the characters. I I, I like the point of view it's coming from. Really, really super impressive. I liked it a lot. Very cool. For me, one of the most, I guess, cool things about a show is like when it's sort of consistently good. And like, it's one of those things on the shows that you put on. And you're comfortable and you're excited at the same time and just to see what happens. And for me, The Flash has been that kind of show pretty much consistently throughout its run. I can pick little things apart about it where it's I, I haven't enjoyed aspects of it. But it's just such a continuously good show, a consistently good show, I should say, with a cast that is clearly having 
a great time with great stories. Like, and they're just celebrating comics and these kinds of stories and these kinds of characters and these kinds of heroes in such a way that's so it's such a relief to see and grant gustin and my doppelganger tom they're having the time of their lives with these guys and i love watching this show week after week and it's just so cool to see them continuing to tell fun stories and not taking themselves too seriously. And the, you know, I just watched the one when, uh, you know, we get elongated man, you know, and it's like, great. This is exciting. I'm super stoked on it. Like Ralph did me right on. Of all the shows in the CW, this is the one that embraces the comic book lore the most with the biggest open arms. I mean, they don't seem to think anything is too ridiculous to put on TV and, yeah. And, and not just to not be afraid of it and not run from it. This is the one. I mean, they all do that to a certain extent, but the Flash really says, well, this is what we are. We got Gorilla Grub. We got Elongated Man. We got Captain Cold. We got Shark Man. What was it? The Shark Man. Yeah. King Shark? King Shark. King Shark's in it. Yeah. They, they don't care. And it's great. And I think it's all the better show for it because they don't run from what they are, which is a superhero show. And I know I was really skeptical. I mean, I'm my Flash is Barry Allen. And, and in my head when I was a kid, he wasn't like, Grant Gustin does the show, but uh, Grant has owned and embraced this character in such a positive way. I mean, yes, some of the episodes have been dark, and when he's been able to play a darker side, it's been that much more effective because he has such an optimism about his performance. And then you have these wonderful episodes, which you look forward to, these crossover episodes. The Supergirl was fantastic. Yep. And they just did the Crisis 4 show crossovers, and apparently that is also fantastic. And to see people embracing what so many of us love about comics, this this whimsy, but this sort of that of quality and of humor, but of stakes and drama and relationships, it's all encapsulated in this show. And I'm so glad it's on. It's a real gift, I think. So let's take a quick break. First of all, to thank everyone this year who helped uh, iFanboy out, who helped support our various shows through various means. We would not be here doing this show without you. We thank every one of you. And honestly, we couldn't do it without you. So thank you very much, everyone who did all the following things. Number one, patrons over at patreon.com slash iFanboy. We have a great group there. Our next stretch goal is a non-comics media podcast, which is basically would be a monthly version of this show. And the patrons over there are great. They can vote in the patron picks to put into our Pick of the Week show. They, they get their superpowers. They also they have great discussions over there. So thank you, all the patrons over at patreon.com slash iFanboy. Also, thank you, everyone who bought a T-shirt this year over at iFanboy.threadless.com, where we have five T-shirt designs, our two classic shirts, the iFanboy shirt and the Herm shirt, our three new shirts from this year, the Pick of the Week podcast, the Radix shirt, and our newest shirt, the If One is Electro shirt. Everyone who bought a T-shirt or even bought those designs on, say, a mug or an iPhone case. Thank you very much to everyone who did that. And we have more shirts coming soon. We were hoping to get them out before the end of the year, but the design process is taking a little bit longer than we thought. So hopefully that'll, that'll be kicking off next year. And also, thanks to everyone who went to ifanboy.com support. That's where they found a PayPal button if they just wanted to make a direct donation instead of joining up at a patron level. We always thank the eccentric billionaires out there who may or may not don donate one day. Who knows? You never know. And there's also, you can find all kinds of links on the website to help us out. But we appreciate everyone who does that, honestly. This year, we, we sunk a bunch of money into things to speed the website up, to make things better. And uh, we couldn't have done it without all of you guys, uh, your support. So thank you very much, everyone, this year for making it a great year at iFanboy. Let's talk about games. Nice. This used to be the video games. game segment, but we moved on to all yeah. kinds of games. And this year, I found myself playing in a very stereotypical early middle age, uh, yuppie white male way, a lot of board games this year. <laughs> One of the games I played a lot was a game called Carcassonne, which is very similar 
sort of to Settlers of Catan, but it's a board game in which there's a wide open territory and you're building city-states in opposition to other people building city-states around you. And you're, it's basically a game where you have to build as much territory as possible. And it's super fun in a big group at a party. Uh, I found this little group of people here that we play semi-regular board game nights with, and this is one of the games we play a lot. And there's an iPad version I have in my iPad. It's a similar in that vein of Catan where you're building out your sort of empire and you're trying to build the biggest one. It's it's fun. I yeah, I want to play that. It's an iPad version? Yeah. That sounds Car- great. Carcassonne. We can play each other on the iPad version. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Cool. I, uh, you know, Connor and I work at a company that is in the industry of video games, and I realized as we were getting into it, I knew nothing about them. And I was looking around uh, the landscape and sort of noticed a couple of games really came up. And so I really dove into them to sort of get an idea of what a game's like now. The one that I put down here is from a developer called Naughty Dog. And for those of you who've been playing games forever on uh, console, and it won't be surprised that their name came up because Naughty Dog makes some incredibly amazing experiences. And the first one I really started playing was a game called Uncharted 4, which is obviously the fourth in a long line of games. And it's basically this experience of what it would, of being kind of an Indiana Jones character. It's the last uh, adventure of this guy, Nathan Drake. And I had no idea about Nathan Drake. I didn't know anything about the Uncharted series at all, except for kind of the buzz about it, that it puts you in sort of these Indiana Jones situations and you, you live in this world. And it was off the charts. It was unbelievable. It was super exciting. I guess I heard they're <laughs> making an Uncharted 4 movie, and I have no idea why you would do that, because the game itself makes you feel like you're in a, a film and it's got incredible uh, voice acting they use the technology that is available to them to tell really cool stories i mean i think it was sarah bernhardt who said years ago an actor acts in their pauses that's when all the work is really done and the technology is is such now that you can have that kind of facial fidelity where you're getting real emotion coming across on these characters faces and it was super exciting and it was a a poignant end, apparently, to a series that many, many people have held in their hearts. And I, I, I really got – it was a surprising amount of emotion in it. And then they came out with uh, Uncharted 4, The Lost Legacy, which is a story of a, a, a side character in these games. And it was similarly really, really intriguing. It's a big adventure, like looking for lost relics. You know, you're it's basically Indiana Jones with, you know, crazy traps – car chases, nefarious villains, big action sequences, amazing music. The credits for these things go on literally for like 15 minutes. It's the amount of work that goes into these things. They're great games, and I really enjoyed playing them. Another game we play at our group of uh, board game friends is a game called Coop. Coo? Not Coop. Coo. P is silent. I've had, this is a long show. Coo. Coo. It's very similar. Josh, you'll know this. We played that game Werewolves, or it's very similar to Mafia. It's a game in which you have cards and you are... It's actually a game that it can go long, but it can also end in five minutes. So you can play many times. Mike, were you there when we played this? Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, you played Coup. That's right. Yeah. It's a game where you're all members of this court. It's, it's, uh, you know, of some undetermined country and world sort of futuristic artwork on it. And you're trying to outmaneuver the other members of the court to take power. And you're trying to assassinate people. You're, You're trying to amass your power while also simultaneously diminishing theirs and you don't think this game could last five minutes but it actually can go very very quickly depending on how well you play it it's a card game 
I played it over Thanksgiving. We brought it up to Thanksgiving, uh, and they had a good time playing it. It's it's about who can lie the best and who can bluff the best, and you can you can play it five or six times in a, in a night. It's really fun, super fun. Yeah, we had a blast playing that. Yeah. Uh, back on the the video game part of things, that's this game out that is out now. I called Destiny Two, which is clearly the sequel to Destiny, which I, I tried to play because it had been out for years. I picked up the big edition of it and had all the different volumes in it. And I was thoroughly confused about what kind of game this was. Uh, Destiny Two, just like Destiny, is really it's a it's kind of like World of Warcraft in as much as it's massively multiplayer in a consistent world where there's other people playing with you, but it's first person. So it's kind of like a uh, Halo meets uh, World of Warcraft. And these are really intense games. I mean, they're high stakes incredibly. Destiny 2 in particular, I'm playing on the PlayStation, but apparently it's incredible on the PC as well. The graphics are fantastic. Um, you re- I'm not used to this kind of fidelity in these games. And the world building and kind of like the outfits and the ships and the vehicles and the guns. It's just like being in a sci-fi movie. But what's great about it is that you can play with your friends. And, you know, everybody's got a headset. And you can go and do these adventures with your buddies. I actually played for like three and a half hours last night. I felt like I was back in college. And we talked about uh, the weather in Seattle and other things while we were trying to kill all these aliens. And it was it was really uh, it was really, really fun. And then what's great, since it's a persistent online world, you'll see these huge public events where you're playing with 12 other people, 20 other people to uh, deal with some sort of invasion situation, whatever it might be. It's cool. It's I don't know how anybody gets the time to play these games, but it's kind of fun to tap into it and see what's going on in them and realize just how amazing the technology is and what now having this thing called the internet connecting everybody, how it really opens up these games. It's a little scary because I've lost a lot of time like you guys to World of Warcraft, but it's kept my interest and it's been really, really interesting to be a part of this community and watch sort of things that are happening with loot crates and all that kind of drama behind that. But uh, definitely has eaten up many, many hours, this game, by Bungie. It's hilarious that you're like, I don't know how anybody has this kind of time, but I spent three and a half hours doing yeah. Like, I don't believe... had a holiday don't... party. She had yeah. a holiday party. I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but literally for me, video games are a guilty pleasure because oh, if I spend sure. any time on them... I'm supposed to be doing something else. Either way, I tend to play about a game a year. I talk about this. Um, Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I think last year I played Assassin's Creed Unity, and this year I played Assassin's Creed Syndicate. Uh, These (laughs) are things that I'm doing. I got off of my, I played every Grand Theft Auto kick, but it's really easy to tell why I got into these. That movie was awful, by the way, even though my (laughs) last benefit. I mean, it was 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 shockingly awful. Uh, Anyway, so the last one, Unity, is you're uh, in in Paris during the French Revolution, which you sign me up, and then the syndicate is the one. These are a couple years old, but I buy them when they're like 15, 20 bucks, basically. Exactly, cause, exactly. Because it takes me so long to play them. There's no benefit to me getting them when they come out. It's stupid. Syndicate right. is uh, late 1800s London, and you're you're running around. And the, the great part is that like the city is completely rendered, and then you know anybody who games knows this. These are not like, uh, <laughs> like low-level games, but that's the thing that I was into that I spent... Probably There's the all first. kinds of kids listening to this going, Jesus Christ, these guys are old. Oh, I know. I know. Totally. And I, I admit <laughs> it fully. But that was the thing. And I think there's another one coming at some point. I'm pretty excited because I will totally buy the next one, but not for a year and a half. Oh, yeah. It takes place in Egypt. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's all right. That's cool. That was good. And there's an education uh, mode. They're fun. I have no idea what the story is supposed to be. At. I don't understand. I think it's stupid. I hate it every time they go to it. They just run around and kill people from behind when they don't know what's coming. That's my favorite thing to do. 
Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, normally when I play a game and they give you a chance to like walk on the dark side or the light side, I'm always a light side guy. In this yeah. one, I've decided all the bad guys are bad guys, so I can just kill them. Because in the wow. game, if you just kill like a random person, like you die, so you can't do right. that. So I'm cool with Here. it. You can Garrett the night away. Yep. Or Garrett. Fun time. Uh, another Naughty Dog game made the list, and again, I was trying to educate myself. This is an older game. This is a I've heard years. of all the ones you've talked about, at least. Yeah, this is a game called The Last of Us, and folks who are familiar with the series are really excited because The Last of Us 2 is coming out uh, very soon. And this is basically... Boy, it's a it's a it's a zombie game where you're, but it's a story, and it's a story of this girl and this guy who have to travel because basically, it, no, it's not a spoiler really. She got bitten by the zombies, and she did not turn, and so something about her genetic makeup, something in her blood, makes her resistant to the virus. That's just sort of the platform on what is really a very intense emotional action game. It's really weird. Like at one end. You're really kind of traveling through the wreckage of America. I mean, it's just like it's basically like Walking Dead where you, you know, you're looking for food and, and ammunition and you're seeing, you know, abandoned homes and you're seeing people's lives upended by this zombie apocalypse. And these, there's all these relationships that happen and there are some really intense decisions made and there's real loss <laughs> in these games. I, I played uh, with our coworker Jennifer and she played the first act and she's like, I'm terrible at this game, and I'm also crying. <laughs> and she was crying because of the story. Right. And it opened in a way that was really, I mean, I just, it was totally unexpected. You know, I really realized why so many people feel such affinity and so much dedication to these stories and these brands and these developers, because they're able to tell stories that TV and film, by design, just can't and don't need to. You're very much living these narratives it, you know you're not really shooting zombies but you're you mind you're very close to those emotions and there's a reason why games like last of us win all these awards because they really take this kind of storytelling and really put it in a place that sticks with you forever i mean this i, I know these characters when i saw the trailer i'm really excited to see what happened because i didn't know there would be a sequel so it's on sale for like 9.99 now so it was it was cool so definitely go check it out and finally, the other st the game, I think I've talked about this one before. Connor and I play it all the time. It's a game called Heroes of the Storm. It's blizzards. It's one of the, it's like a MOBA thing. It's basically really aggressive chess <laughs> where you have all these characters that you can arm and you play against each other five on five on various kinds of maps. Everybody knows these kinds of games, whether it's um, Dota 2 or League of Legends. And just having an affinity for these blizzard characters. And, and it's also, frankly, a lot easier and the games are shorter, but they're super fun to play and um, it's a fun way to while away 20 minutes. I played one game while I was waiting for you guys. <laughs> I had a brief Clash of Clans problem, I think, earlier this year. Maybe it was last oh, yeah. year. I forget. I had to remove it from all my devices. Oh, really? Wow. Jeez. Well, it's what I do because like, I'll get up in the morning and I sort of reach over for the thing and I, and I, you know, and, and I just like, no good can come of this. <laughs> there, well, was, there was the Great World of Warcraft problem, so we, we know. <laughs> All these games sound all fine and good and whatever. The best game I played this year was the Hamilton Ticket Lottery. And yes, that's a super yes. fun game where I say, yes, I'd like to win Hamilton tickets. And then a couple of days later, they email me back and say, you did not win. And I just do that over yeah. and over for a full year. That's the most fun game I played all year. Yeah. And you hear about winners. Our coworker has someone, she has like four friends that have won this lottery thing, but not yeah. I, another. 
I, I really, I thought for a little bit, I was like, let's come into Boston. Maybe we can. And then since then, I just, I just, I'm throwing away my shot, as it were. <laughs> it's a super fun game. It's a nice little relationship I have with the game. It's, I <laughs> yeah. get a push notification on my phone. You want to play this week? Sure, I play. And then I get a notification saying you lost. Yeah. It's a game you yeah. can't win. It's, it's really like the lottery then. Yes. Oh, yeah. So uh, this next segment is titled the Ron Richards Memorial Music Segment, which we almost, we, we sometimes think about cutting it. But no. Strangely, this year we had actually a lot to talk about. Yeah. Anybody who's been paying attention to me in any way knows that my midlife crisis has to do with music. I've been playing music and going to shows and listening to music and learning about music. And that's been my thing. Now, mostly what we're talking about is going to shows by 40, 50-year-old white men who need to tour because they you know, don't make enough money for record sales. So I get to see people who I didn't get to see the first time around. I've been super into indie like 80s underground stuff and things like that so there's that and some other stuff so my most i'm starting my most memorable show of the i went to a lot of shows for me let's put it that that's way. a lot of shows dude i mean yeah no i mean I, I bought a lot of tickets this year and i'm kind of like i don't have any uh, actually that's not true i saw ted leo ted leo releases uh, this album the hanged man for the first album he's released in seven years i've been a pretty big fan not rabid but i've had like a few albums that i really like a lot and i just never got a chance to see him uh, i bought tickets on a whim in for september and i had tickets for three other shows that month and it's kind of a big ask around here to be like can i go out for a fourth show <laughs> but i i was so glad it was my favorite show that i i saw all year i had kickstarted i, I gave him some money to do his album uh, the Hangman, which also came out, which at first I didn't love, but the more that I listen to it, I'm I'm coming around to it a lot. It's a very personal album. He had a lot of problems at home over the past seven years or so. His wife got really sick, insurance problems. He had to go out on the road because it was the only support they had. There's interviews out there with him, and he's incredibly forthcoming. He's a bleeding heart liberal vegan guy who is awesome. He's the best. He has the greatest voice. He should be a much bigger star than he is, and I love that show. He played for three hours. It was the best stage banter I have ever heard. Um, wow. It was so good. I mean, like, if he comes around, you need to go, although his tour is about to end. But what happened was that I saw um, there's a few shows left, and he's playing a show tonight in Providence. He lives in Providence, a hometown show, and I couldn't go because of this. So I'm going to go in Portland, Maine tomorrow night, and I'm totally going to be exhausted from doing it. But I'm not going to miss the chance to see him again if it's another five years or whatever it is. Um, wow. But The Hangman is a great album. You should check it out. Listen to it. Also, I met our friend Ron Richards for a show in Rhode Island also in um, – uh, what's the capital? Not Pawtucket, but the other one. Doesn't matter. Providence. Providence. That's it. And it was a P, which is where I just said Ted Leo was playing, by the way, for those of you at home. <laughs> the show where I'm at. The, the mental deterioration is happening yeah. live. Yeah. I have been a Descendants fan for, you know, well over two decades. And last year they toured. They don't tour all that often because, A, like a few years ago, Bill Stevenson, the drummer, had a huge health scare and almost died. And then Milo, the lead singer, has a job. He famously quit the band and went to college and then famously quit the band and, uh, you know, became a he's like a biologist or something. He's a smart doctor, dude. And uh, much like Bad Religion, my other favorite punk band. But they toured last year and I couldn't get tickets. And uh, this year they were touring again. And I was I was so thrilled. and I got to go with Ron and see this band who are just so good. It's one of those things you get there and you watch the opening acts and you're like, oh, it's pretty good. They don't sound great. And the descendants take the stage. And this is a band who's been doing it for touch less than I've been alive, a little less than 40 years and just are are just perfect. They're everything you want it to be, but they're also kind of old men. Not super old. They're in their you know 50s, early 50s. I actually saw it was Bill Stevenson's birthday the night that I saw them. Just it, the crowd is all over the place. There's young people and old people and boys and girls and, and sort of everything. And it was it was amazing. It was just so 
cool and they were so perfect like they just sounded exactly like you would want the decemberist the decemberist descendants to sound it was great okay trifecta that same month i saw matthew sweet who i, I haven't even thought about matthew sweet since the in the I 90s am, i mean I am a, that's awesome i am a lone matthew sweet holdout i have i have <laughs> every album he did in the 90s and each album he did in the 90s had one great song on it and the rest of them were okay and then he went on a like a cover album thing with Susanna Hoffs that he did for a while and they're fine but whatever and I saw he was coming to the town next to mine there's a local music venue that usually has people I don't want it's basically like the best person this venue would get would be Sean Colvin Mm -hmm. so it's like people a generation ahead of mine who'd want to go see them you know that kind of thing like like the bass player from the birds something not David Crosby that's not right. But uh, anyway, actually, maybe David Crosby, like a big show for them. So they had Matthew Sweet there. And and uh, and uh, unfortunately, they did not sell out. And I was like, oh, they're never going to bring somebody back like this again. They're going to go back to, you know, 60s acts. Yeah. Not like 70s, 80s acts yeah. almost, but not the kind that I want. But that being said, I asked my wife, I said, you want to go see Matthew Sweet with me? She's not a big fan. I should point out that I think that Matthew Sweet's girlfriend, the song, not the album, well, the album is great probably his best album uh the, the song is the greatest pop rock single of the 90s that's what i think it, it's not it's fact it was so good my wife didn't want to go and she was like this is really good and i was like i know he sounds 100 as good as he ever did his voice is amazing the band was having fun uh it was a great great show and i was so glad i got to see it, it was like a little small venue i, I they're never going to come back because they can't have sold enough tickets to make it worth it but i was super happy i did and side note my therapist, who I'd recently begun seeing, sat directly in front of me for that show. And, wow. and apparently, apparently, follow-up, did not see me. Wow. <laughs> wow. What does that mean? She wow, was, that's intense. From me. Right. I, know, I think you need to explore that next time. So why don't you see me? I have to move on. I, I was wondering what on. kind of nod she gave you. Was it an up nod or a I down nod? I thought she was just cool. She's like, no, no, it's cool. And nope, she just wow. didn't see me. I was like, no, it's directly you. behind you. That's, really? That's, that's a session or two on its own. I, I uh, have these friends who invited me to Coachella this year. Coachella is not necessarily something I would normally go to. It's a massive two-weekend <laughs> festival in the Coachella Valley in the, in the summer. Thousands of people. It's like crazy big stages and smaller stages. And I don't, I'm, I, I'm not really well-versed in the festival circuit, but this one is one I went to last year with the same group of friends and i went this year and i had a as i did last year i had a blast i really enjoyed it and there were a couple of performances that i just thought would be worth calling out uh sophie tucker a a duo that had the most exuberant kind of electronic but also analog dance music but not dance music situation going on and they're just a thrill really the the big hit for me was uh, New Order closing it. I had I'd never seen New Order. I obviously I, I was a huge I am a huge fan, and we got there pretty early. It was the last show of the entire show, and we got in front of where the soundboard was, and they tore the roof off that place. They sounded incredible, and That's I turned show. back. I turned back, and it, there were. I, people as far as I could see and Blue Monday or and, and these songs had come on and it was so well mixed. People were singing at the top of their lungs, but it was OK. And it was just so cool to see this music that I had listened to so many times and be around a community of people that were so into it and for them to hit it note for note. And what they did, a couple of songs, they added a little bit of a different drum beat 
and the songs instantly became modern. Like you, you could, you would hear them now at a club. They it just the smallest tweaks, and you really got the sense that these guys they're just pros. And they they uh, ended it with two Joy Division songs, and it was just it was Which? level tears apart and one I didn't recognize. Huh. It was cool, and it was a really really wonderful way to close out what was a a really fantastic festival. Cool. So cool. I'm not someone who often goes to see live music. I've, uh, I've done it occasionally, and I always have a good time when I do it. Yeah. There's always that famous show that Josh and Ron and I went to see. The, the, the Descendants. The, no, not The Descendants. <laughs> the Decemberists. <laughs> but, and I always have a great time, but I'm not someone who does it. But earlier this year, I was at a bar, and Megan and I were drunk, and we were talking about live music and what artists do we want to see before they die? Like, who do we want to never say we wish we could have seen them play? I, I, I can't even talk about it this year. And strangely, <laughs> well, the strange thing was, and this was early in the year, we came down to Willie Nelson and Tom Petty. And we was like, well, clearly we got to see Willie Nelson because he's not, like almost 90 and Tom Petty will be playing forever. And sadly, he obviously didn't. I deferred going to the show that he did in Boston. I said, nah, I don't want to do it this year. So that's, mad. that's a lesson to actually always do it if you anyway yeah the point is we went home and we were drunk and we ended up buying vip tickets to willie nelson's fourth of july picnic woke up the next morning and said do we spend a lot of money on a fourth of july <laughs> music festival in austin texas uh, i think we did so he's been doing this festival since 1973 every fourth of july it's this incredible outlaw country festival that he headlines with all of his buddies. Like it was, uh, Cheryl Crow was one of his big guests, but like Steve Earle, his son, all of his, all of his kids' band play. Lucas Nelson's band, which was, was so good that we bought the album. His daughter, Raylan Nelson's band played. People like Billy Joe Shaver, Ray Willie Hubbard, Turnpike Troubadours were really good. People I'd never heard of, but I really enjoyed. You're, you're really bringing a different view to this than has ever been put on before. <laughs> yeah. Right Some guy named Jamie Johnson, who was great. I'd never heard of before. It was a really great time uh, in 101 degree weather in austin in july and then willie came on with his family at like midnight where i was like i was done and he came on however old he is and he just he is a pro he he plays song to song there is no stopping in between songs he throws 25 headbands out into the crowd through the course of the evening (laughs) he played with all of his kids they did a whole medley with with all the big name guests somebody big had just died right before they did a tribute to him I don't remember who it was at this point when my head hurts, but I had a great time. I mean, I was exhausted and I was sunburned, but he was great. I was really glad I got to see him play and he played really well. So he still got it, however old the hold he is now. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. And apparently I found out later on from my uncle that I saw him when I was a kid, but I don't remember that. So yeah, it doesn't count. I saw Elliot Smith once and didn't realize it. Oh. He was like the opener for the opener and I didn't know who he was at the time and then... Like I found out years later, and that crushes me. Steve Earle was great, by the way, Josh. He was oh, yeah. really good. I have no doubt. I saw Bob Mould do a solo show. For those of you who, prob- who might not know, Ron has been trying to get me to listen to him for years. I mean, like <laughs> this goes back like a, like a decade, and, and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. And then like, he slowly got me over. And in the last couple of years, I really sort of turned around. Bob Mould was the singer-guitar player for Husker Du, who I could tell you about why they're important if you don't know for a long time. But it doesn't matter because they are an uh, important 80s hardcore band. I don't know if hardcore is right, punk, whatever. They changed to something else. He broke up and he was in a band called Sugar, and he's been doing great solo work for almost 30 years. 
and he came around. I really wanted to see his rock band, um, but they weren't touring. He was doing a solo show as a benefit, and it was literally just Bob on stage uh, with a with his Fender Strat and a loud Fender amp behind him. But he played and performed it exactly as if he had a band with him, and I was blown away by just how much presence he commanded. And and I've really become a big fan. Uh, over the past few years, and uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But it was just this great, this great spot in Boston called the Sinclair, which is in Cambridge, which has become my favorite place to see shows. I saw, I saw Dinosaur Jr. there. I have tickets to see Super Chunk there in April, and in like the middle of it, like it wasn't so long. Let's see, like it was six months or so after the election, and and he just started talking, you know, like in the middle of it for like a while, and 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 it was like stream of consciousness. I've seen shows where there's there's sort of canned banter, and this was a whole different thing. He was just talking to us because he knew he had people who were going to listen to. You know, Bob is Bob is a super interesting dude who's a gay man who's also part of the sort of the roots American punk scene, and it, it's a lot of things going on at once. Um, and he wrote for you know professional wrestling for a while. Uh, he's fascinating. It was such a great show, and it's one of those things like, oh, I'm I'm never going to miss him again. I'm I'm not going to miss a chance to see him perform ever. Says so that. That's awesome. I, yeah, thank you. You know, not everybody's going to be into Husker Du, but man, listen to Workbook. Yeah. You know, yeah. listen to like it's it's so good and it sneaks up on you. I got here's another. This is going to be the video game equivalent of my uh, alternative rock music thing. I got super into the Silver Sun pickups this year. I think their big debut album, not debut, but their big hit album was 2007. So that puts it 10 years behind us. That was Carnivus. I had to learn one of their songs, like Lazy Eye, which I guess was a, their biggest song for the band I was playing in. And I became obsessed. I bought a guitar that is exactly the same guitar, like same factory as the guitar player. From <laughs> I don't even want to sound wow. like him. Wow. But I got like obsessed with the thing he in, in like I thought he was a girl for a while. And then I was like, oh, no, it's a dude who's singing. He sounds a little like Lindsey Buckingham and people compare them a lot to the Smashing Pumpkins. But I don't know, whatever it is that the, the, the drummer has this like throbbing, repetitive sort of beat that goes on. And, and he does these huge guitar sounds that are very affected and very driven. It doesn't sound like a lot of things, but it's also really poppy at the same time and melodic. And pretty much every song, at least off the first two albums, sounds exactly the same. Like the songs are almost all the same and I cannot get enough of it. I bought Carnivus on vinyl and I listen to it all the time. I've been for like three months now. Like that's all I've been listening to that. And then I moved on to Swoon, which was their 2009 album, which just tells you how hip I am. Um, Yeah, but like that's where I'm at musically at the moment, because last year and the first part of this year was a lot of 80s punk and and sort of post-punk stuff, which is I'm still listening to a lot of. But Silver Sun Pickups has been a big deal for me, along with uh, The Joy Formidable or For Me Dob, if I wanted to go for it. So that, that kind of thing is a similar band, but with a lady singing from, from Wales. I've been into that because I've been playing guitar a lot. I've been playing in a band and, and sort of seeing what can be done with that, that format. I missed the chance to go see them for t- twice, actually. Uh, they, they played one show that I was like, wow, that's weird that they're playing that big place. And it's because they were opening for Third Eye Blind. I was like, I'm not doing that. And then they played in like Hartford, which was just too far away. And that was like a couple of weeks ago. Mike, there was a point a couple of weeks ago where every time I opened up Instagram, I oh my God. was inundated by pictures from the LCD sound system shows it in ridiculous. LA. It was everyone yeah. I knew yeah. here in LA was going to this show. Well, they played like five shows. I was one of the, the many people who saw LCD sound system. They're on tour right now. They're actually going to be in Boston on the 8th, and they're going to be in the, in, in Brooklyn for like many, many, many things. But they're a terrific band. LCD Sound System, for me, they, I was they were sort of this electronic band, but then I realized, oh, there's nine people playing instruments on the stage right there. I saw them at Coachella years ago, and I 
my friends went and saw them at the Palladium. It was a very different kind of space, very cool uh, experience. They just really play really cool music and it's really fun to, to dance to but also the lyrics are cool and he's each band member really contributes in a very cool way and uh definitely worth your time if you can see them for me it's one of those bands where i kind of like their cds or their music just fine but when you see james murphy doing his thing with the entire band live you really get okay that's why I, my friends are going three or four nights <laughs> out of the four night uh, engagement because they are just an incredible band to see live so yeah lcd sound system was a good show for me this year that's exactly what happened with ted leo it was just like oh oh you're really good at this live yeah it's that's exactly right exactly right love that let's talk about books the uh thing we wish we could read more of but there's a lot of things that happen in the course of the year we're going to kick it off with a book that I am really surprised that we have not talked about amongst ourselves. I think I'm the only one who read it. The Rise and Fall of Dodo, a novel by Neil Stevenson and Nicole Galland. Totally. Yeah. Normally, amongst the iFanboy members, when a new Neil Stevenson book comes out, it consumes our lives. But sure. I was the only one who read it. Was that the case? Yeah, it's been, it's it been a year, Connor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear it's good. I liked it. He's got a co-writer for the first time. I mean, it's still pretty much a Neil Stevenson book, and it's it's really funny if you know anything about him at all, because he really drills down deep on sword fighting in this book. <laughs> Broad Strokes, it's about a organization called Dodo D-O-D-O, it's an acronym, Department of Diachronic Operations, and it's about time travel. It's about this group in the government that figures out time travel and the disaster that comes from that. Really interesting, as all Neil Stevenson books are, really interesting scientific concepts that unfold in interesting ways. And again, since they go back in time, he gets to talk about sword fighting, which he loves. I had a good time reading it. It wasn't one of his best books. It's certainly not 70s or certainly not Reamdy, but I had a good time reading it, as I do with most Neil Stevenson's books. And it's you know, 768 pages, so it's one of his Oh, mid, it's a mid-size. short no- a novella. Yeah. yeah. Quick read. Quick read. Yeah. I'll get to it. I, 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 you know. It's actually a pretty fast read, too. It's a breezy one. <laughs> so... Because I've been into breezy stuff. (laughs) The way that I've been able to get through books is that I will listen to usually historical novels while I ride my road bike. Uh, And I'll put my earbud in one ear and I can then I can go forever doing that. I'm going to talk about the one that I did recently. And then later I'll talk about the one that I finished before that. This year I did uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William R. Shirer. I believe it came out in 1955. Shirer was a journalist in Germany through the rise of the Third Reich, so all through the 30s, through the beginning of World War II. But it's this exhaustively researched, but also weirdly personal, because he was there for a lot of it. Just history of Hitler and the Third Reich, you know, from start to finish. I'm not saying it was a cathartic thing to read or that I was doing it, but, but you know, it was so, I, I, I couldn't stop. I listened to it. Like, I would stick that earbud in my ear every second I got for however a couple of few months it took me to get through it because it's like a 50-something hour book. I learned a lot of things I never knew. This is what we were talking about with Vietnam earlier. You know, we all talk about Nazis and we talk about Hitler and everything, but to really understand what happened and how people were manipulated and how it all went down, and there's a lot, I mean, there's there's more written about this than probably anything in history, you know, maybe, yeah. other than maybe the Roman Empire. But it's a really good starting place if you've if you've never been sure. And, and it's and I'm it's no doubt awkward to pull out that book somewhere in the world, oh, depending on where you live. But if you've ever been curious about it uh, and as a thing to learn about, it's a really great piece. And it, it suffers a little tiny, just a little bit from being written in the 50s. There's a couple of times where he refers to some of the early Nazi officers as perverts and homosexuals, which is anachronistic. But besides that, ultimately, it should be read. Again, it should be read. You should you should read it, especially now wow. to understand. Mike, did you not have a book that began with the rise and fall? 
I know I'm, I feel so left out here, but I do have at least the notion of three in my book. So it's like third Reich, three body. I mean, That's I true. saw what you did there. And it's also the third book on the list. So I feel like it cancels itself out. I read The Three Body Problem by uh, Shishin Liu and Ken Liu. Uh, Ken Liu did the translation. And this won the Hugo Award in, I think it was 2015 or 2014. And apparently it was a little bit controversial. But this is basically a first contact novel. It's really, really good. It's very uh, dense. It basically, it's really interesting to read a book by basically China's best-selling science fiction author. And the point of view on what it's like to engage an alien species is really, really different. Also known as, if you are in contact with an alien species, get off the planet. <laughs> you do not have your best interests at heart. It's really well written. The translation is fantastic because, I don't know Chinese, it's in English, but you get the sense of the way the Chinese language works the way the descriptions are, the sort of objectivity to the thoughts. It's hard to describe, but it feels like a foreign novel, but it's all the better for it because you, it really helps embrace the tone of this novel, uh, which is, you know, it's which is a Chinese science fiction novel, and it's got a lot of Chinese history in it. It's a different kind of worldview. And there's two sequels. I'm actually reading the sequel right now. Um, it's a, a trilogy. And I guess it was on Barack Obama's top 10 books of the year that year, which is kind of cool that he was reading this kind of book. You know, there's different kinds of science fiction. And this is one of those hard science fiction ones. It's a little, it feels more <laughs> for more real, for lack of a better term. But it's very, very thoughtful and, and really engaging. A little dense, but very rewarding, I thought. The Force, a novel by Don Winslow, Josh, is basically like reading The Shield, but taking place in New York City. Okay. This was a uh, much buzzed about book when it came out earlier in the year. I think it's being developed by David Mamet for a film. Don Winslow wrote The Cartel was one of his big books. And this is the story of a corrupt New York City strike force in upper Manhattan where everything goes awry with their carefully constructed kingdom up there. Fiction. It's a fiction book. Tough guy in New York. Cops who deal with drug dealers and they deal with cops trying to figure them out and politicians who are trying to use them for their own means and crime statistics. It's one of those books that feels, unfortunately, super authentic. Great dialogue. Great gritty cop dialogue. I tore through this book. It's a super engaging and interesting cops, New York City cop story, uh, which I liked a lot. So just in terms of what I'm reading right now? Yeah. I, I took a pause on the on the crackdown takedown the one you talked about it last year. Oh, uh, takedown. Because a while ago I bought the Bob Mould memoir, See a Little Light, The Trail of Rage and Melody, which is sort of assisted or co-written by Michael Azarod, who who wrote. Oh, I'm I'm blanking. The book I talked about last year with all the indie bands, Our Band Could Be Your Life. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I bought it a while ago and it's been sitting on the shelf and I finally had to pick it up and take it on my vacation the other day. And if I didn't have to do anything else, I would tear right through it. The story is super fascinating of of Husker Du and touring during that time and he's a really really good writer and it's like you get a sense of the voice of the person but in a good way you know some people don't write so well like that and i it's it's really great you know i know people have finished it and they also really liked it so that's what i'm reading now and if you're looking for a, a rock memoir uh, it's a great one sort of keeping in line with uh, the movies we talked about earlier i finished finally future noir the making of blade runner by paul salmon i had the edition that was actually published in 1985 there's a new version of it out that takes the new film into consideration uh, this book was kind of it was odd it was recommended to my wife whitney by brandon braga who said that this was in his opinion the best book on making movies that was out there so i i read it under this sort of weird pretense, this, I love the movie Blade Runner, but I didn't think about it in terms of this kind of book. 
it reads like the most hardcore Blade Runner fan making the most hardcore Blade Runner book ever. But it really goes into all the machinations and all the problems and all the challenges of making movies. And this one in particular has such an incredible story of how it actually reached the screen and the different changes that happened in the script and the interactions with Philip K. Dick. The movie was based on his short story. It was just really, really interesting. And if it takes into account all of the different aspects of movie making and really shows just how difficult it really is to make a movie. And it just sort of blunders on, like, of course, it's Blade Runner. So there's so many different things that happened after the film that sort of add to the mystique of the project. If you're interested, if you like the movie Blade Runner, this book is cool to read. But if you're interested in getting the movie business, I do think it's a really good, realistic take on just how difficult it is to make these kinds of projects. This year, I read a trilogy of books. So the last Policeman trilogy sort of fell in my lap. I put aside what else I was reading. I tore through all three. The Last Policeman is the first novel. The second one's Countdown City. The third one's World of Trouble. They're known as the Last Policeman Trilogy by Ben H. Winters. The basic premise of this, these novels is that an asteroid is discovered that's coming to Earth, and it's going to be one of those planet-killer asteroids. And with each book, the asteroid gets closer, and it's basically about society breaking down as this is happening when you've got this one cop in New Hampshire, actually, Josh, who hey. uh, wants to keep doing his job. He wants to keep being a cop. As With each book, society gets worse and worse and more unrecognizable as it goes. What do you do when you're a cop and you want to solve a murder, but you know, in three months, everyone's going to be dead anyway? It was a really great book, great cop book, great mystery book, but it's also really interesting observations on society as deteriorates yeah. throughout, throughout the course of the trilogy. I had a comic pitch that was very similar to that that I put out once. Great books, really great books. Three super fun cop stories and did not make me think at all about the state of the world. Oh, no, why would you? No. This is almost just to tell you I did it. But I was talking about the other book that I finished. Mm-hmm. I finished all three volumes of Shelby Foote's Civil War narrative wow. um, on audiobook over the course of several years on my bike. And this year I got to finish it up. And it, it's funny because, you know, like we, we were talking about the Vietnam War, but it, like, the other thing is Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, we're still the whole time. I'm like, oh, we're totally still fighting this. Yes. Again, this was the start in the 50s, came out in the 60s. Apparently, historians have some issue with some of the way that it's told, but not really a lot of factual problems with it. I don't even know how somebody would have gone about writing this, but the prose is is so great. I mean, it's as good as any book I've read one way or another. You get to know everybody involved. The only problem is that it's so expensive. There's so many people that it's a little hard to keep track of because it took me so long to listen to. Each of the three volumes was around 50 hours each. Whoa. Um, Wow. Yeah. So I, I mean, that took me, that took me years, but I finished it this year. So that was, yeah, it was great. It was great though. I mean, like it's so good. I'm so glad I I got through it. A book I'm reading right now. It's a biography of Irving Thalberg. It's called Irving Thalberg, a boy wonder to producer Prince by Mark A. Vieira. This is a story about old Hollywood and this guy who was diagnosed with a rare heart condition and was supposed to die in his 20s, late 20s. And he ended up working with uh, Louis B. Mayer in the early part of his career and really introduced the whole idea of a producer being as important to filmmaking as a producer is today. And it is just incredible, the kinds of things that he came up with, which are really modern ideas. I mean, some of the things that he put in place in this industry are just what we do. That's why there's an Irving Thalberg Award that's giving 
every once in a while. And it's just a fascinating story. I love that period of history in Hollywood. It's just so cool to read these stories and hear about these stars and watch what he was doing. I'm still. He, I mean, he's it. the linchpin. Like he's yeah. the guy responsible for modern. You know, not modern. He made Hollywood the way it's still being run yes. today. Yes. At least yeah. for now. Yeah. If you're interested in the way, like, you know, Hollywood works and, and Hollywood history, this is a great person to follow because he touches so many different aspects of yep. movie making history, including the advent of sound, right? And he yep. and he actually bet wrong on that. It's cool. It's I'm really, really enjoying it. And it's cool. an easy recommendation. We mentioned earlier, Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood, the Second World War by Mark Harris. So we talked about it with the TV shows, but I want to mention the book, which I read earlier this year. It's a terrific story. I think the difference between the book and the documentary is obviously that the book, you get to dive much deeper into the story of itself. But as we said, John Ford, George Stevens, John Huston, William Wyler, Frank Capra all go to World War II and shoot films for the government. What I love about the story is that as of many things that happened during World War II, this would never happen today. You would never have five of the biggest current directors working give up their career and go to the war. Yeah, It'd be the equivalent of like Spielberg saying... Okay, I'm gonna go. I'll stop making films. I'll go shoot for the army, and or even guys like Quentin Tarantino. These are the guys who were making the most important films in Hollywood, up and left for a couple of years, and this would never happen now. Really interesting, eye-opening story. As Mike said earlier, it gives you a much bigger appreciation for these guys as artists and what they went through and how their work changed after what they saw in the war. I think of all these guys, George Stevens' story was the most interesting. He was the guy I knew the least amount about. Yeah, he went through the worst. One of the directors I won't say who went deaf because of what he was doing in the war, but George Stevens was the only guy who ended up shooting in concentration camps, and he was never the same after that. Uh. It was a really fascinating book. And if you like Hollywood history or even World War II history, it's an interesting corner of the war. These guys who uh, were shooting the propaganda. Really great story. Really fascinating story. Finally, a little unusual, but I thought I'd throw it in there. I love you put this on here. Stories I, I Only Tell My Friends, an autobiography by Rob Lowe. <laughs> yes. I was basically thrust this book and said, you should read this. It's a fun, quick, breezy read. Rob Lowe's a good writer. He writes like he talks, and you can totally hear his voice. And apparently, I didn't, although I didn't listen to it, the audiobook's apparently terrific. Yeah, I have the audiobook, and it's terrific. And Perkins! Apparently, he's a good mimic, and he does all the voices of the yeah. people he meets. But this is a guy who's kind of like the Forrest Gump of modern-day Hollywood. Truly. Who moved to Malibu in the 70s from Ohio and ended up living on the same street as the Sheens and the Pens. And grew up with Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez and Sean Penn and Chris Penn. And ended up being, as a young guy, the next hot thing in acting and movie stardom. And then that came crashing down. And then he reinvented himself in TV. And it's just a really interesting story about a really interesting guy. I don't think I knew how interesting Rob Lowe was. I can't believe Josh, when he was doing the West Wing, he commuted from Santa Barbara every day. Really? He literally drove from Santa Barbara every morning down to the set and then drove home at night. Those would be long shoot days, too. Yeah, because he had to get out of Hollywood because he was going to die from just over-partying. Because he's one of those classic, you know... Young guy comes, gets big early, starts partying too hard, becomes an alcoholic, and then it takes too many drugs and gets in trouble. And mm. really great stories. He friends with Cary Grant's daughter, and he had a great story about the first time he ever got anything on TV. It was a after-school special, and he watched it in Cary Grant's house with Cary Grant and his daughter. And he was like, I'm watching this shitty after-school special with the biggest movie star of all time. And I think you've done a great job. That's basically what he said. Uh, oh, my God. The story about his bodyguard friend in Europe who gets murdered by some shady special forces operation, like after dropping him off at the airport. Like it was, He has fascinating stories, and he tells them really well. I have way more appreciation for him now as 
an actor and a performer, as much as I love him in West Wing and Parks and Recreation and things like that, much more appreciation for what he's gone through in his career. It's just a really fun book, really fun autobiography. So those are the books. Let's talk about podcasts. We make podcasts. I don't listen to a ton of podcasts. A couple I do listen to. You have a short commute. So it's, you're, I have a, you're I have a very short way. commute. But one I always try to listen to is The Business with Kim Masters. We've, we talked about it before, but Kim Masters yep. is the editor-at-large at The Hollywood Reporter. So she does a, a show for the local NPR station, which they put out as a podcast called The Business, in which the first... 10 minutes or so is a conversation about what's happening in Hollywood. And as you might imagine, it's been a very interesting conversation the last couple of months. And then the second part is always an interview with a filmmaker or a producer or somebody. And those are usually pretty great. I always get something interesting out of the business with Kim Masters. I like it a lot. It's pretty much a must listen to down here. It's a great show. It's been that way for years. Yeah. Trivia. Trivia. I, I used I used to almost be in a band with her husband and I would go to her house oh pretty my. regularly. And A, she wasn't very nice to me. Uh, or like, I, I think it's like my husband's loud friends are here. And then also, he just unfriended me on Facebook at some point recently. So, <laughs> so Aww. it's okay. I wanted to give a shout out to, I want to take that word back, but I want to mention Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell. I mainlined the first season, I think last year. I think we talked about it then. The second season came out this year and I was really looking forward to it. I think they do 10 per season or something like this. This year, they just went above and beyond. I loved the shows last year. I tell everybody I can about the Elvis Costello slash Hallelujah episode Mm -hmm. from the first season. This season dealt largely with race, and they talked about a lot of race stories that I thought were just so compelling and fascinating and well done and, the, and I just love the way that he goes after things I learned to hate golf courses I wanted to mention that Megan listens to this when we go on road trips I hear it sometimes and I did hear the golf course episode and that was a really terrific one because I love how much he hates golf courses and especially the ones in LA and also like you know there was an unreserved liberal slant to it he wasn't trying to be objective about it other than the facts that he was going after and trying to get in the story but like he's like this is wrong and I, I just I kind of appreciated that, you know, and he's Canadian, so it's a slightly different take on it. And then there there is an episode uh, this season on Winston Churchill that blew my mind away. And, and after we talked about him so much, like you guys both need to go. Well, I've, I've heard that. it. I mean, it's not. Oh, did you? It's not yeah. a secret. It's even mentioned in the Darkest Hour movies. Yeah, it's no secret that people in the 1940s who were in the aristocracy were racist. It's not a big. I mean, it's not. Yeah, not I, a I, big just, I didn't know the story, you know, because I, I hear the story, and that's not one of those people that I, I've, you know, well, that wasn't in any of the HBO movies. It was great. I just I I loved that show. It was it was so much better than what I think we think of as a podcast because he's got the money behind it. Yeah, he's got a budget. Yep. A show that my wife actually introduced me to is NPR's podcast. I think it's probably a show somewhere with Guy Raz. How I Built This, which is our interviews with people who have made cool businesses, technologies, that kind of thing. And they're nice interviews. I mean, he can be something sometimes kind of interrupty, but they're just nice opportunities for people to talk about how they got to where they are now and some that come to light are the guy behind Burton the snowboard company and the just the trials and tribulations trying to make that uh, Howard Schultz from Starbucks the three Albertos that made Zumba is a terrific episode if you're interested in how these companies came to be, it's a cool podcast to listen to because you realize that there's no such thing as a green light. <laughs> Everything always blows up. Everything falls apart. And it's it's interesting to watch these minds and these personalities face these kinds of challenges in totally different ways and make something that is now ubiquitous in our society. So a very cool podcast. I mentioned this last year. You must remember this with Karina Longworth. I haven't been listening to them in order. I just sort of pick whichever season sounds the most interesting, and I've been going through those. So this year I listened to 
The MGM series, which in conjunction with the Irving Thalberg book we just mentioned, is a great listen. It's a must-listen to, if you like old Hollywood stories, MGM's probably the most important studio other than Warner Brothers in the history of uh, Hollywood. And then I've been listening to her season on the Manson murders for some reason. Don't know why I picked it, but I did. Actually, it was, it's been really great. I'm like two left that I haven't listened to. And there's so much in that story I, I had no idea about, and it's so interesting. And now I'm really excited for the Quentin Tarantino movie about it, because it, I think it's a really important thing that yes. happened that no one really knows the details about. I think there's a vague idea of what the Manson murders were, but I don't think people... I think people did, but I don't think we do now. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, people now yeah. don't know what those were, why they were such a right. big deal, why it really changed the face of a whole city. Really great series. She does these 12-episode series yeah. on certain subjects, and this was a great one, too. I was talking about this band that I love called Sunny Day Real Estate and how the drummer is one of my favorite drummers of all time, and he doesn't do a whole lot. And somebody on Twitter said, you should listen to this interview with him on the Trap Set. Trapset is a, an interview podcast about drummers. They talk to drummers. He's a drummer and he's like a semi-professionally does. He does. He actually does the music for Master of None. So that's like his regular job. But he's he's a drummer. He toured the interviewer, Joe Wong, uh, and he got really addicted to uh, WTF episodes and decided he wanted to do that. And so what followed was um, me listening to that one episode of interview with William Goldsmith. He basically was fired from the Foo Fighters. He's the one guy in the world who think Dave Grohl's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really great interview. And he's not like 100% right on about it. Like he's definitely got some issues of his own that I would make me understand. But anyway, I started listening to them one after another. And you don't have to be a drummer. There's interviews with people from, you know, every band I've ever loved. He interviewed Ted Leo's drummer. It was a great interview. He The first episode is Brendan Canty from Fugazi, which was an amazing interview. I love interviews with people who are in their 40s and 50s who were punks once. Because most of the time they get this really sardonic thing where they understand what they stood for, but they also realize it was a little idealistic. Right. They have a great view on it. He did an hour with Phil Collins that I was like, I can't believe he's asking these questions because he isn't just talking to them about drummers. He asks really personal and interesting questions. He's a wonderful interviewer. I'm going to take from him when I'm doing comic book interviews. I've listened to, you know, 50 of these. Uh, wow. One after another. Most of them are about a half an hour. They increase into about an hour after that. A lot of my favorite bands get interviewed, but also a lot. You know, I just listened to an interview with Sheila E. He goes all over the place. It's such a good music podcast and, and also just interview podcast. That sounds terrific. Trap set, uh, yeah, which is a trap set. term for drums. It's, it's great. My phone is often a daily outrage machine, <laughs> and obviously there's lots of different ways to get angry about things. A podcast that I've been listening to kind of resisting Listening to it at first was a, one called Pod Save America with John Favreau and a, a lot of people. Former Obama. Former Obama speech writer. Not John filmmaker Favreau. for John Favreau. Yeah, yeah. Tommy Vietor, John Levitt, and Daniel Pfeiffer. These are all people, many of, I, I think all of them were in the Obama cabinet at some point or another. Uh, they banded together and made a media company called Crooked Media, and they have tons of different podcasts. They call them pods, which is frankly annoying, but I get it. Anyway, it's just a way of getting caught up in the news and a really good interviews with people who know what they're talking about. They're not fun. They're funny, but they're not fun to listen to. And there's a lot of ads of them. But they've really opened up this whole venue of political podcasts. And there's lots of that stuff out there, which is great. But this one, I feel like, really sort of set the stage for lots of these kinds of conversations. That and left, right, and center in KCRW. But it, it, this one came to mind when I was thinking about podcasts that I, I've been turning to over and over again. So worth a listen. Our buddy Ron hosted Damn Fine Podcast with Tom Merritt, podcast legend. Ron and Tom are big Twin Peaks fans, as I am. And this show 
went through every episode of Twin Peaks. They did it one episode per episode. And then they did the ancillary material, the books and the movie, If I Walk With Me. And then they did one episode for each new episode of the new series. And then they are wrapping it up shortly with a couple of more episodes. But first of all, as a Twin Peaks fanatic, it was a must listen to. And uh, second of all, I was on, I don't know, five or six episodes of it. I don't remember how many I did. But it's a show I listen to every episode of, which is unusual for me. I would have been listening to the show even if I wasn't on the show. I'd still listen to it. It's a really great Twin Peaks podcast. Nice. Throw in an audible. I was okay. going to talk about S-Town, but everybody knows about S-Town. It's like talking yeah. about cereal. Everybody knows about it. It was great. I started getting into uh, watched a lot of YouTube videos about guitar stuff. <laughs> um, and there's a show called That Pedal Show out of the UK. These two guys who know a lot about guitars. One of them used to be an editor for Guitar Magazine, like the head of it. And the other guy runs a pedal board switching company. And they basically do about an hour show every week. It's a video show. It's pretty much the same thing that iFanboy used to do except it's about guitar pedals and effects and, and amps and stuff like that. Wait, was you saying our show wasn't about guitar pedals? No, no. I feel like that was the subtext of our show. No, but wow, it works yeah. It works because these two guys know enough and like each other and are entertaining and they have a great relationship. And it's just, it's, you know, a couple of people talking. They're on stools, not a couch. It, it's so good. And, uh, you know, it, I've learned more about guitar from them than I have anything else like all the dials on an amp work and how like the, what sound you're actually looking for and what pedals do and, and how things work but that would be very dry in its own they just have, they have a great friendship and a great relationship with each other and uh, you know I'm a, I'm a patron for their show it's so good I'm not going to tell you to listen if you don't like the guitar it really it's like the next version of what we were doing very early because there wasn't YouTube when we started right it's once again like oh good we were way too early for what we were doing but it's a great show I watch it every Friday morning one of the cool things about podcasts is watching these people come together who have great relationships, have known each other for years and getting a sense of that kind of camaraderie. And as a listener, you feel like you're part of that group. And yeah. the guys who do this, frankly, it's sort of strange. I listen to a Heroes of the Storm podcast called Core with Scott Johnson, who does tons of different podcasts, and John Jagger and Bo Schwartz. And it's one of those shows where, yes, it's talking about this game, but I am often laughing out loud on my way to work or back from work, which I don't, I, I laugh a lot, but I, it's just one of those things where it's just their, their banter and the kinds of things they come up with are just, just legitimately entertaining. I'm a patron of their show. It's fun to listen to. I can't recommend it if you don't play the game, but it's one of those cool things where they, it's not just a nerdy show about the game. It's something else. It's they've made a real great community. They've got great features and they do a really great job. And if you're into games, it's a really fun podcast to listen to. And it's one of those things I look forward to week after week. All right, let's wrap it up with comics talk. We talk about comics every week on our Pick of the Week show, so we're not going to go in depth. We're going to do some quick hits on some of our favorite books. There are a lot of great books this year. These are some of our favorites. Some of them. Some of them. I'll kick it off with Black Hammer from Dark Horse. Jeff Lemire is the writer behind it, and I'll be hard-pressed not to say it's my favorite book. It's often up wow. there in the discussion. It's Jeff Lemire's take on Silver Age DC Comics with these characters who are very clearly avatars of certain DC characters trapped in an alternate dimension and the mystery of how they got there and how they're going to get out while we find out their backstory. I think it's just an absolutely terrific Jeff Lemire superhero tale. Probably the best superhero book he's ever written. Wow. From out of nowhere, Black Bolt was a really great series over this last year um, by uh, Saladin Ahmed, whose name I had seen on Twitter, but I don't really know who he was. Christian Ward on art. They took a Black Bolt who, frankly, has been floundering in comics for quite a bit now in the inhumanification of the world. They put him in prison in space, told the best absorbing man story I've ever read. 
Uh, which you yeah. know, that's not a high bar, but it was fantastic. It looked beautiful, and it's still going, so it's it's great. It's a really good Marvel comic that I hope no one makes a TV show of or does anything because I don't want them to touch it. Just leave it alone. Let it be. You know what? Aquaman. Aquaman was a really great book. I enjoyed it before, but once we had the art change, which changed the entire look and feel of the book, it's still Dan Abnett writing it, but now it's, you know, the guy's name that has lots of strange vowel and consonant combinations, which I don't want to mess up, but the guy from Top Cow, uh, Stefan Sajic. 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 Changed the entire look and feel of the book. Now it's this really interesting Game of Thrones-esque story of crime and the underworld and a mad king in charge of Atlantis and Aquaman being sort of a mythological creature because he's thought to be dead, so he's now this vigilante in the slums. And it's this gorgeously lush book. The art is beautiful. It somehow comes out every month. It was like a shot of adrenaline. It was like that scene in Pulp Fiction with the uh, shot to the chest. That book just came alive with the new art team. Wait, the one with all the shit in her face? And uh, I, now it's a book I, I'm excited for every month. I liked it before. I love it now. And it's one of the best books going at the moment. Uh, until I die, I will never stop talking about the Flintstones comic book. And as it ended this year and came out uh, with its its 12th issue. 12s, right? Right? Yeah, 12, yeah. Mark Russell and Steve Pugh, the best mainstream comic of last year. And I don't know that anybody's beat it this year. It was our book of the year last year. Yep. And it, it was wow. Just- Wow. No, no. Like anybody asked me, like, what should I be reading? The Flintstones should be the first thing. And I know that that sounds ridiculous, but it was that good. You know, Mark Russell brought a satire to it that no one expected because they didn't know who he was because he hadn't made comics before. Uh, I mean, like he, it was it was great. And it, and it wrapped up this year and a, a trade is out and you need to get that trade. You need to go get it. It's the best thing DC put out last year and, and it's as good as anything this year if the defenders is brian michael bendis's last hurrah at marvel and i guess it is uh, it's a great way to go it's a return to form it, it feels like the bendis of old it's all the netflix characters together and so what they're great together they work together they make sense together and the dave marquez art is terrific that book sings with him and art duties and when i read this book every month i get that feeling i got josh i don't know 10 years ago when he was writing New Avengers and reinventing yeah. Marvel Comics, and it, it just feels like, oh, there's that Bendis. That's right. That's the guy that <laughs> changed the entire game for everybody. A really terrific book. So when Mitch Gerrits and Tom King announced that they were going to do Mr. Miracle, I thought, well, you've got yourselves a high bar now, people, <laughs> because people expected really great things of them after Sheriff of Babylon and a couple of uh, Batman issues. And boy, howdy, are they delivering. It's not just as good as the other things. It's better than the other things. It is. Okay. I said the Flintstones is the best book. Right now, Mr. Miracle is the best book at DC. Well, Flintstones is over. So there you go. Right. Exactly. So I'm, I'm hedging. It's more than what I wanted and what I expected. I, I, I can't quite tell you why. And it was my job to be able to tell you why. It's that good. It's a great story that we can't put our fingers on yet because it's still going but that's the story mitch garrett is also he's doing the work of his life and you know he's good but he leveled up completely here and there there's two creators who work together so well and and it, and it shows and get get on this now terry moore did motor girl this year as a 10 issues i guess miniseries or series that was beautiful it had interesting things to say about PTSD. As I mentioned on the podcast recently, I, with that final issue, I'm not quite sure that I understand everything that happened in it, but I'm going to reread it again to find out because the characters were terrific. There's no one better than Terry Moore than cartooning. And it's nice to get a little short story from him, from a guy known for his long works. And I really liked that a lot. I want to give another shout out to Brian Bendis as he prepares to head out from the warm confines of Marvel. You know, he was doing two Iron Man 
books. He did uh, the one with, I don't remember the titles. Invincible Iron Man. And Irredeemable? Infamous. Infamous, there you go. One uh, Infamous was about Doctor Doom, Victor Von Doom, taking over the mantle of Iron Man and, and trying to do good, which sounds like a stupid, stupid gimmick, but really, really interesting with Alex Malivart. And then over in the other book was the new Iron Heart. Uh, Riri Williams, but also it was a story about Mary Jane Watson and Pepper Potts and uh, Tony Stark's real biological mother and also Friday, the AI who was running the company in Tony's absence or whatever. And none of it should have worked, but I looked forward to each of those every time they came out. And then at the end, they sort of dovetailed and came together. Now, literally, now they're half of books. Yeah. Yep. They were so good. And they were just fun superhero comics in a place where like Iron Man's been all over the place for a while. It's hard to pin him down. And then these should have been not good, but they were really good. I threw an audible here. I had a different book lined up originally, but I'm putting in Batman from Tom King and various artists based on the last couple of issues and things like the annual issues. You know, Tom King, is he came from a different point of view than Scott Snyder doing Batman, and he did some interesting stuff in the beginning. I think right now he's... He's in the yep. groove. He's in the Batman groove right now. This last arc with Joel Jones on art duties has been terrific. The Batman annual number two was terrific. I really like where he's going with Batman. And for DC to be healthy, Batman has to be healthy. And right now, Batman's real healthy. Uh, we're in a little bit of a hiatus right now. But I was <laughs> so happy that the old guard came out. This was classic Greg Rucka. Actually, a little supernatural, which I don't tend to consider classic Greg Rucka. And Leandro Fernandez about these soldiers, these folks who who won't die. And they've known each other for hundreds of years, and they're making their way through the world, and there's a conspiracy and, and all this stuff going on. But mainly, it just it feels like reading something like Queen and Country, and I don't have comics like that in my life anymore. And so when it came back in, it, it just it felt like, oh, this is the thing that I've been missing. So I hope it comes back soon. It's been pick of the week a couple of times already, and I, that's not going to be the last time. Speaking of things that you feel like you've been missing, I, it, the book that struck me, uh, one of the only books I read now and read all of these, was, uh, no surprise, Slots by Dan Panosian. He writes it, he, he draws it, he does everything on it. He doesn't do the lettering. It was one of your guys' pick of the week, and it's only a couple of issues in the story of this, uh, what, Xboxer sort of con artist coming back home to Las Vegas and figuring out what to do next. And the art is stunning, and it really reminds me of the work of our friend Darwin Cook. And so it's a, it's a wonderful book to sort of come back to. And there you go. Those are some of the comics we enjoyed, and those are a lot of the things in the media <laughs> we enjoyed over the last year. And It doesn't even scratch the surface. That's how much media is being produced these days. But thank you for making your way through all of that. Let's quickly wrap this up. This is our last regular Sunday show of the year as we take a break, but we're going to have the Star Wars The Last Jedi review podcast coming out sometime this week if you're listening when this is released, which is around the 19th or 20th of December. You can find our take on Star Wars The Last Jedi happening around that time. We'll be back at some point. We're not going for good. We'll be back with the pick of the week number 615 on January 7th. So we'll be back for that. We'll see you then. And in the meantime, you can head over to ifanboy.com. That's where you can find all of our podcasts. And you can find out what the pick of the week is before the show comes out by liking facebook.com slash ifanboy and following ifanboy on Twitter. And you can follow us individually at Jay Flanagan on Twitter and Instagram, at CS Kilpatrick on Instagram, and at Reich Momo on Twitter and Mike Romo on Instagram. You've got to tighten that up, Mike. <laughs> well, it was a while ago when I made the Reich Momo. You can know you can change it. my name. Oh. You can. Uh, you well, there's can, another, there is another Mike Romo, and uh, he lives a very boring life. There is not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you 
<laughs> if you like the show, of course, you could write us a review on iTunes or leave us a star rating on iTunes or or do the similar thing on whatever the podcatcher you use is. Uh, better yet, tell your friends all about us. If you like what we do and you think that they might like it too, introduce your moms, your friends, anybody who you think might be into this kind of thing. Everybody does that. Of course, we really appreciate it. And thank you. That's it. We made it. I'm shivering. I love, I, I love that you still say introduce your mom to podcasts. I mean, that's been on there like forever. For years. We're for hoping. Years. We're hoping to spread a movement to moms. Someone's going to do it. Someone's going to do it. All right. So thank you for listening. Thanks for doing the show, guys. I got a headache from all the talking and maybe not eating dinner before we did this. Thanks to everyone who listened this year. Thanks for everyone who listened to this episode. That's it for this year. And I fanboy. I'm Connor. I'm Mike. That would make me... Oh, Josh, there it is. Thank you. See you oh. next year, kids. And I have